Hello and welcome back. It is time for another long form discussion on Lord of the Rings. We already did Fellowship of the Ring. Now it's time for the Two Towers, the exciting yet admittedly flawed middle chapter of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. The thing, the thing that I feel most about the Two Towers, which I regularly call the Twin Towers, and I have to stop myself before I start. It's bad. Um, is that I could right now do the same in-depth discussion that we did at Fellowship of the Ring, mm -hmm. and I saw that longer ago than Two Towers. I'm having to make myself remember bits and pieces of Two Towers. There's it's a little bit. It's it is. It's it a is, little spotty. It is undoubtedly a middle chapter. Middle chapters tend to be the weakness, which is why Empire is always interesting to me, is because a lot of people think it's strongest. Uh, but it's not as strong as Fellowship of the Return of the King. But we'll, we'll get into this. So who just heard? That was Nathan Velasquez. He's the producer for Off the Bench. Uh, you all seen on the show. And then to my further right, we have Mr. Brian Wood. If you're uh, watching, you go, then Brian. it's to his okay. left. Uh, okay, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. I'm, but, you know, most people probably listening, watching, <laughs> whatever. Welcome in. Brian hosting movies on the Brain Podcast. Uh, Brian, how can they subscribe on iTunes? Uh, just find us on iTunes. It's, uh, the, it's at Movies on the Brain. Uh, we've been going uh, hot and heavy for... Over 200 episodes now. Yeah, consistency. We 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 try over 200 episodes. Oh yeah, man. How long have you been on? Four years. Okay, nice. H him and him and Chad have been holding down. Shout out to Brian's partner in crime, Chad Metz. Yes, indeed. Um, and thank you, T Bob, for the invitation to come back and to have this long form discussion. Uh, I know we said it was going to be a week. It <laughs> turned out to be much longer than a week. But I am all here for the running action sequences. And uh, Palace Intrigue, that is the two towers. Yeah, we got, uh, so we wanted to have this all done before Christmas and just because life. That's and other right, stuff this was going to be a holiday thing. And like we got in trouble a little bit. We just, it, it didn't happen, but you know what? It's happening now, so that's fine. So we talked about Fellowship for two hours. Today we are going to break down Lord of the Rings, two towers. We're going to do it in a similar fashion. I figured how we did it before. We kind of just went chronologically, beat. right? Beat yeah. by beat, go through the film, what stood out to you, what didn't, what we liked. Um, there's probably like fellowship felt like it was almost all just a purely positive celebration. This is a more flawed movie. I think there will be more criticisms in this. And then once we make it through two towers, then, uh, we will be on to return of the King. And, and, and so it should be noted that we are going to talk about the two towers extended editions and we Which are at about 45 minutes to the theatrical. Yes, uh, long. And, and actually, it's a much better movie than the theatrical cut, in my opinion. I started watching the theatrical cut on accident when I was watching this, realized about half an hour in, and then had to go back, start the uh, extended version, which I realized flows. It, it, at least the first, which I guess 30 minutes is about an hour whenever you get the extended edition. It, it flows so much better. I mean, there's much more to it, but um, the rhythm, there's much better rhythm. Yeah, you can tell that... They just because of pure kind of movie modern movie constraints, they had to make a lot of cuts they did not want to make um, from this Two Towers movie that made it a worse movie. Like I've always described Two Towers base cut as maybe a B or B minus movie, and I think that the extension maybe bumps it up to a B plus kind of A minus type of area. Like I think it's a pretty significant upgrade. In fact, we will talk about what is my favorite of all the deleted scenes of all the scenes that were added back in is in this movie. So we'll break it down. Uh, so like we said, and this is mainly going to be about the movies, Peter Jackson behind the stuff scenes of not a lot of book talk um, in, in this film. We're, we're, we're going to be speaking on uh, the film. So let's start then. Uh, let's start with the movie starts. 
which is what I think with a very nice storytelling mechanic. Um, when you're like, what's the first thing you learn when you're in like elementary school about writing, right? It's a, you want your first sentence to grab him, right? Hook him. You want to hook, hook him with him, that thesis get him with some action. And so what does two towers do? You open it, these beautiful sweeping shots of the mountain. Then all of a sudden you dive into this mountain crack and you're right back there at the Balrog fight. And it's, it's effective for so many reasons to me. First off, it's a great action scene to start things off. But secondly, it, it, so if you're thinking about it, if you're a theater goer or whatever, however you're watching these movies, there could have been some time between the time you watch Fellowship of Two Towers. So it kind of like does this kind of quick and dirty reintroduction of these characters like, oh, yeah, remember this? And then they use the same shots from Fellowship when the Gandalf and, and Balrog fight until the Balrog reaps Gandalf down. And then what I love is instead of following the Fellowship we get this new perspective, which although it's Frodo's dream, so like what actually is true or not in it, whatever. We get this new perspective of Gandalf, what happens to him after he falls, and you go down the hole and he's fighting the Balrog, and it's just like a really good action. I feel like it carries, yeah, it is just a dream, and it is kind of, a, it feels just like a shame that you weren't actually seeing what was happening, but it does feel like you are, like Frodo, it might be more than a dream to Frodo. I mean, it he's got be. the almighty ring on. He could be getting some type of vision of something that happened. So whenever, at least the first time, when I saw it in theaters, I thought it was a dream, but it could have something more help. Well, and, and I don't know the answer there. So that's a question we should play with. Is it, it a it dream is, or not? It is It is a legitimate thing. It's in the appendices. The story of of how how Gandalf and the Balrog fight and how he uh, you know, ultimately defeats him. Um, and, the, of course, the trippy scene that comes later in the movie about how he transitions from Gandalf the Grey to Gandalf the White. Yeah. Um, and they end up, what's fascinating though, is because if we, if we count Frodo's dream as more of a vision than a dream, that means they literally battled and Gandalf says this, but they battled from the depths of the mountain to the, the very peaks. To the like they fall all the way down in that underground lake and then they end up fighting all the way back to a peak where eventually Gandalf finally slays the Balrog. Which, um, Peter Jackson stated that at the time, um, there are a couple things to highlight here. First, I, um... When I rewatch the extended cuts, I do so with the director's commentary, so that I can add some some kind of a uh, different perspective to our conversation. Okay. That's yeah. nice. Um, originally, New Line came to them and was like, "We need another prologue. We need another seven and a half minute, very detailed. This is where we are. Catch everybody up, kind of thing." And Peter Jackson and Fran and uh, Penelope were all like, "You know what? No. Like we had so much of a headache with that the first time." No, we just want to do, focus on this Gandalf thing. We feel like it'll be enough. Like, I mean, the movies are only a year apart, and the DVDs come out in August and no, in November. So, you know, it's not like these movies were, you know, it's something like an Avengers movie where they come yeah, out. Yeah, no, it's not four three or four years. years. That, that's a good point. For me saying who knows how long it is, it's, it's actually way shorter normally the, than you talk the, about from sequel to sequel. The theatrical cuts always came out in August in DVD. And the extended cuts always came out December, in November. Right. Yep, yep. And DVD and and Jackson repeats multiple times throughout um, the uh, ja Jackson, you know, repeats many times throughout the commentary. Hey, we do these extended cuts, and we release them like six weeks before the film comes out, so that people have them, so they can watch them, so they can be even more informed when they go mm. go to see the next film. Because there are small things, for example. In the, the opening scenes with, with Sam and Frodo, they use the Elvish rope. Yep. Well, the Elvish rope isn't anywhere near. See, I always forget that Galadriel's gifts weren't in the, in the Fellowship-based version. In the version. Fellowship cut. 
in in the uh, theatrical cut for Fellowship. Oh, okay. So if that you would be confusing, see, right? So if you didn't see the extended cut of the Fellowship, you had no idea where those things came from. Now it doesn't add to or detract from your enjoyment of the film. Is it? It is but, interesting though, because by the end of Frodo's journeys, you see Galadriel's gift save him a total of three, three times. times. I'm so excited to see the spider. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which actually. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We're getting way ahead of ourselves here. <laughs> way ahead so, of ourselves. So, so basically... No Shelob talk no, yet. So basically, uh, there was a shot. They, they flipped some of those shots around from Fellowship yeah. for the opening of Two Towers. And when they were falling into the lake, the Belrog was supposed to become kind of like this slime Belrog, kind of this melted oh, creature. Oh, okay, that could have been cool. That, that was going to cost them an extra 50 grand. <laughs> and oh. so they were like... You know what? We don't necessarily need that. They had storyboarded it out. Um, they had planned for it, but they just didn't didn't have the funds for it, so they pulled it out, um, which I thought was interesting. And as far as like what's going to guide our conversation going forward in this film, in this movie, um, Jackson and Fran and Penelope say at the very end because the commentary goes all the way through the credits. They they say in the credits that like. Because they had to do Academy Press and the BAFTAs and everything else for Fellowship, they were six to eight weeks behind the entire time they were developing and working on Two Towers. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's quite a that's quite a sprint. I can't really imagine the. Uh, I mean, well, he's married to Fran Walsh, right? right? I yeah. I cannot imagine Peter Jackson and Fran Walsh really being able to go through that type of thing. And I know they did it with The Hobbit and survive. A relationship like that, unless you're both working on it together. Yeah, and and I like, mean that's quite a hustle. And when you hear about Jackson's workload on the original movies, especially, I mean, this was a decade of his life, and his days. I mean, he he would wake up writing, doing re-edits to the script, then he would start shooting, then at the end of the day, he would go straight to the editing room, and he would sit there and edit all the shots together. You know, sit down yeah. with the editor and put it all together. I mean, it was a twenty-four-seven multi-year grind for Jackson. Uh, and yeah, on top of that, having to do, you know, you're getting rave reviews, so you're on the award circuit at that point as well, like you're saying, Brian. That is, it's intense. Six to eight weeks behind. They, I mean, they, it's they, already a logistical nightmare yeah, they, trying to manage all that. Yeah, they said they felt like they were six to eight weeks behind the entire time. And that's why he admits, in the they admit in the credits, that they had the toughest time cracking the story for Two Towers, yeah. figuring out what to leave in and what to take out, how much dialogue to put in, how much dialogue to take out. Another interesting thing that they talk about in the commentary is she, uh, uh, Peter Jackson, Fran, and Penelope all bring up the idea of a television series post oh. post uh, post trilogy yeah. for ways for New Line to make more money, and B, they bring up the idea of a twenty or thirty or forty year anniversary DVD box set of a reedit of the trilogy mm. in chronological mm. order. Mm. So the oh. scenes that were, for example, like Aragon and um, and uh, I'm blanking on her name, Gl- uh, uh, Arwen, Arwen, uh, Aragon and Arwen in the death scene where she's at her, at his graveside. Mm-hmm. That's the flashback or the flash forward, as you will, because that's actually in the appendices. Yeah. Um, that scene would then go at the end of Return of, after Return of the King. Mm. Um, you know the 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 shots of them talking before the fellowship go off. Those yeah, yeah, be, no, no. I, 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 uh, I don't know. Mm, I like it'd be a Herculean task. If, if they yeah. want to do it, sure. I'm, I mean, I'm always down to watch new Lord of the Rings stuff, but that, 
I don't know, man. That Pro- seems like uh, that seems like it could. No, I be, never. It, like, it seems like it could not be worth it. Like, there's a reason why you chronologically, why you break things up from chronological order, and it's because from a storytelling perspective, it can be and they more satisfying. And they openly admit they messed with the, this book more than they did any yeah. either of the other three, the other two, because there are certain points that you need to change around. And I don't so. hate all the changes, and we'll and we'll, we can get into some of those changes. Um, I will say this: hearing that the six to eight week behind thing. It is kind of a nasty foreshadowing for the problems that I think doomed The Hobbit, which is where The Hobbit was even more seat of your pants, less time writing. And it's something you see all the time. Like, not to go on too much of a tangent here, but True Detective Season 1, incredible. True Detective Season 3 has been incredible. Season 2 was crap. Why? Because they didn't give him the time. They're like, we need a season now. He didn't have the time to really flesh it out. And from a writer perspective, especially where your writing can always get better. Like, you're never really done writing something. Eventually, your deadline just comes up. Like, you can always fix things, take away things. You can always write better, write more. Um, yeah, time is key. So. Which is why, like, when we talked about last time you were over here, how we'd love a Paul Thomas Anderson movie every single year, I used to be that way. I want that man, if he needs to take another six years to make a movie, I'm fine with it right. because he needs his time. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You were... I've said it with video games all the time as well because there's always kind of delays. I would rather a studio delay and get it right over rushing it out and getting it wrong. And honestly, you know, sometimes there's like fiscal responsibilities to shareholders and other things like that that don't allow you to do that. But in a perfect world, creators would be given that time. And yeah. Jackson says in the commentary, too, that there were, especially there are certain scenes that he talks about, and we'll get into that later, that were literally story, not storyboarded out, just literally shot haphazardly, and they went back and they basically front-to-backed the, the scene digitally to make it work yeah um and he also says there were literally times where actors were showing up on set and they were like well, i need to see what you need need me to do and they were like we don't have it yet and they mm. were dropping scripts off to him at night in their hotel room yeah so like they, they openly admit that two towers was the biggest crime that's really funny because that sounds like a lot of what they did on the hobbit and it just blew up in their face there um all right so so gandalf and the balrog that's a reopen they fall the second they hit the water <gasps> We wake up, and suddenly we're back, and we're with Frodo and Sam. And to me, it is a very effective, like I said, storytelling technique because it reminds us immediately where we came from, kind of reminds us of those characters. And then to It's go, one of the biggest questions that you have, what the hell happened to Gandalf? It doesn't yes. answer it, but it's nice that that is kind of – you that's, that thirst is satisfied. Well, it also just – to me, it just it immediately reminds you, oh, wait, like, oh, yeah, okay, wait, they all split up. And yeah. Frodo isn't with Gandalf anymore. And Frodo and Sam left everybody else at the end of the movie. And, oh, yeah, that's right. They're heading towards Mordor on their own. Um, I like the trudgery of the – I like the trudgery of these scenes. Uh, I think they do a good job of getting across just how hard the path to the Immen Wheel is supposed to be. It's very dark, very foggy. It's kind of stifling feeling. Um, it doesn't look like there's a lot of, like, vegetation or life anywhere. Uh, they're going in circles. They're very confused. They have no idea what to do. Uh, I, I think that point out the rope is important because we're talking about extenditions. I do love the fact that in the Fellowship of the Ring, when Gladriel gives these gifts to the hobbits, uh, Mary and Pippin get knives, and then Sam gets rope, and he's like, yeah. well, I mean, don't do you have any more of those knives? And, it, like, anybody would feel that. The knives are, like, jewel-encrusted, and they look awesome. Like, this is just rope, but rope proves to be oh, yeah. the most effective tool nice. for what Sam and Frodo are trying to do. Indeed, and uh, you know the marshland scenes, which are coming up uh, shortly thereafter, are some of the most evocative, uh, you know, Alan Lee paintings and such. Um, it, it just 
I love what what they were doing there, trying to just establish how hard and difficult a task this is that Berto is. I, I think that too. Um, I love the scene where his hand drops his spice box, and you get a kind of yeah, use salt box. You get you get a look into the unending optimism of Samwise Gamgee. The fact that he could be on this journey, he could look off into this and see this giant volcano they're trying to walk directly into, all the evil that surrounds him, knowing he has the most evil trinket in the world around his best friend's neck, and he still thinks like, yeah, you know, we're probably going to get home. We'll be a nice meal on the ride home. Yeah, it would probably only be a hobbit that would be able to have that type of uh, that type of outlook. Unbridled that optimism. resiliency. Yeah. Unbridled optimism. Yes, which is a key theme of the Hobbit character. Uh, what did y'all think about Gollum's intro? So so as we are following Sam and Frodo, and they're very frustrated, you you see somebody creeping in the background. You saw him creep a little bit in Fellowship, but you didn't really see anything beyond a pale gleam of the eyes. And then all of a sudden, here's this creature crawling down the wall. How did you think his intro was handled? Oh no, I I thought I thought it was I thought it was great. And whenever he ends up showing up, he's not as uh, I mean, there is a little bit of a struggle, but it uh, he's identified as this rather weak-ish character, yeah. and uh, I I really liked it. I thought that it uh, I thought it set up it set up enough so that you still have a feeling of his dual nature that's going on. Um, but it identified the the little bit of the Smeagol side that comes out later on. Which which I liked. Um, I definitely um, enjoy Gollum as a whole, and I can. He's my favorite thing about this movie. But he much. was like pop culturally, he was the biggest part well, of the movie. In circus, it launches circus to unknown heights. I mean, yeah, they talk in the director's cut about how the casting director sent them a bunch of voiceovers, basically because they were at the time they were just looking for the voice of Gollum, and you know that they sent the videos of the guys talking and like. Circus was the only one. Didn't they like actually, see his face and like making, his physical he, movements? He was actually getting into it, and he was moving, and he was gnashing his teeth, and he was using the the accents. And they had to go through many, many permutations on that because New Line was concerned about a what I call now a Bane situation, where like you couldn't understand your main character. Well, I still don't know how Christopher Nolan improved the original Bane voice, even though like the revised Bane voice was kind of shitty. But sorry, Tansy, but, continue. But yes, I mean, I think the CGI on him holds up. I think the duality of his character holds up and that moment where, you know, first of all, Circus is there with those two actors filming that scene. Mm -hmm. Which and also I have to say, I've talked to people, primarily older people, if you out there feel that motion capture should not be up for best actor, those type of performances, it's obscene. Because what, and the fact that this is one of the first places where they put this like the front first and center place where it was really done to yeah. this extent how could you see that and not think that that is as eligible that type of performance is as eligible as anyone else that's up for best actor or best actress he well, does an incredible job the he really dialogue, outstanding the dialogue scene alone with him going back and forth between Gollum and Smeagol yeah I mean is just powerful acting but there was a Alan Lee painting of Frodo with the knife at Gollum's throat yeah and they had it on set. And they set. recreate that, and they, basically. They, they had it on set, and they were manipulating the actors to get into the position where he could get that shot into frame, so, so which was awesome. Something y'all are touching on here that I think is maybe my favorite part of the Gollum introduction is up to that point with me, CGI. Like, yes, you, you had things where CGI is physically interacting with the environment, and ultimately that's how you bring it to life. I don't know, and I'm probably just speaking a bit of an exaggeration here, but like, just trying to remember off the top of my head, I don't remember seeing anything at that time where you had real actors and a CGI character interacting so intimately. So when you have them fighting immediately, 
and you have him choking Sam, right? And you yeah. see Sam grabbing his forearm, and you see his forearm digging into Sam's neck. You see him manipulating things that you know are real. I think it sells you immediately on the idea that he is real. The only like, thing I know I it's can CGI, think of is- and it doesn't look like today's CGI necessarily, but it does hold up. And I think it's yeah. because of the interaction between the physical world and the fake world, which all goes back to Andy Serkis, the fact that they did full-body motion capture, and he was actually on-set acting. The only thing I can think of around the same time would be AI, artificial intelligence. That's the only other thing that I can think of that uses uh, CGI to the extent where you're working with humans. But even still there, it's nothing like a full-on fight. What that- always stood out to me, man, I'm telling you, it's that forearm. Because you can see like Sam's like yeah, it's- chin being yeah. pushed down, and then he's like trying to grab it, and you can see it digging into the flesh, and it just because all it's felt so real. Hands. It's yeah, exactly. Hands. exactly. It's Circus's forearms. Like, you're getting the actual... You're getting the actual depth perception of of you know humans and hum and and hobbits and and you know that's that kind of attention to detail and the growth of circus as a performer and as a writer and as a director over the last you know twenty years. I mean the lessons he learns on rings he takes with him to the Apes trilogy. Yeah, and just yeah, expounds which- upon them five hundred times over. And, and I didn't even like King Kong, but he did a good job. Oh, he did. Kong. He did. He. But again, King that Kong's was Jackson. Than Lord of the Rings. Oh that was God. Jackson unbridled, doing whatever Jackson wanted. Yeah, King Kong's not a good movie. No, it's a great movie. Um, Deserved the Oscars it was up for. Uh, I guess. Uh, Suic- that, oh, we don't need to get into Suicide Squad. <laughs> Oscar winning. Oscar winning Suicide, Suicide Squad. Squad for all time. You have not seen Moonlight, which is the worst. <laughs> this man has not seen Moonlight. Uh, okay, so 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 we now we have Frodo, Sam, Gollum. Um, Gollum's va- value to the group is obvious. They need a tracker. They have no idea where they're going. He knows where they're going. But we leave that Which, story. That is that is also a great a great moment. Whenever they are like the moment that Gollum shows up, you would think no, this they've got to get this guy out of here. Yeah, you got. He's him. got no. Even if he knows the way in there, that is not the right. Well, what's he bringing to the table? But they do such a good job of convincing. Like, yeah, I guess you do. You do need him, even though the deal that they strike feels so slimy. And you're with Sam. Like, I don't, I don't like this one bit. Um, they do and a no, great job of making you are with Sam because there's literally never been a more untrustworthy looking person no, it's, than Gollum. Like he looks like kind of the embodiment of evil. What is this thing? <laughs> like and this it, thing will betray you 100%. Right. But like you said, there is a necessity there. Uh, and they established that with it. We're going around in circles. We've been here before. Addict, addicts make addicts relate better to fellow and, addicts. So that's what else I wanted to highlight. I, I also can empathize with what Frodo's feeling. Because Sam doesn't have the ring, and that's not a mark yes. against Sam yet, but he can't really understand. He can't understand what it's like. Well, you can see Frodo realizing that there, even though he doesn't know who Gollum is, he knows that there's something more than how weird and evil he looks. I mean, well, he they're, they're a part of he like a very elite club. Gandalf, there's only a couple people right. that have been in that situation. Right. Yeah, and Gandalf gives him that spill in in yes. the minds of Minas Tirith that explains who who Smeagol was and who Gollum is, and that's flesh out more in the extended cut of fellowship than it is in the theatrical cut, but he does have that background. Knowledge. That's true. Yeah. So yeah. That's how he's able to call out, you know, the Smeagol part of Gollum and bring it out. And again, addicts, you know, and, and Jackson and, and Walsh and, and Boykins talk about this a lot in the commentary. They look at the ring as something that drains you almost like a drug. Yeah. hundred percent. And so you are an addict. You are addicted to that kind of, power and that kind of feeling that rush that you get from the ring. And so they these two people can relate because they have a 
shared common experience of being addicted to the same drug. And so, so, so Frodo's obviously more, more empathetic and, uh, and more able to forgive yes. and more able to assume that he will not actually betray him because yeah, he can still see the good in him. It goes back to the Star Wars thing. There is good in him. I know it. Yes, exactly. And he even says like, um, also that the ring has such a powerful hold over Gollum. He's like, the ring will hold you to your promise. So that's one of the reasons why, um, I'm trusting you. So, uh, so, so, so we establish those three all day. Oh, and by the way, real quick, I don't know why this popped in my head. If we referred to Lothlorien as Rivendell the entire last episode. Yes, we did. I apologize. That's inexcusable. Thank there's, you, Connor. There's, there's nothing for that. I apologize. That's on me. Um, so we have our three there. And, and this is where Two Towers gets interesting, is that really you're telling a bunch of parallel stories. You're, tell, you're following all the characters from the Fellowship, only now they've split up and they're kind of doing a few different things. So then we jump from there. And now we're back with the the trio, the guys, the uh, Legolas, Gimli, Aragorn. Of course, we open. Art? No, I think. Does, and then we go to Pippin. And then and, we uh, go to Merry and Pippin at that point because then we see them tracking. Oh, you're right. You do. You go to Merry and Pippin first. Merry and Pippin have been taken by the Urukai. It reminds us of what happened at the end of Fellowship. Merry's obviously a little. Uh, he, he's he's hurting a little bit. He's got a gash on his head. They're being carried by the Urukai. Being forced to drink ungodly things. Uh, yeah, which is so good. Which, by the way, the the situation Mary and Pippin in would be terrifying. Yeah, <laughs> I mean they're surrounded yeah. by a hundred of these scariest looking monster humanoids ever. The that only are like rough thing, and coarse. They're debating whether to eat them. The or not. only thing on their side is that there is a an orc that is a good enough of a leader to understand that right. We can't kill them right now. We have to kill them later. Yes, so we're going to exactly, do that. That's exactly. the, that's the best thing that they have going for them. I mean, if you actually put yourself, if you really like stop and think about it instead of just being like, Oh yeah, that makes sense. Mary Pippin get captured by orcs. But if you really stop and think if you were three and a half feet tall and you were surrounded by those creatures and the way they talk, it would be terrifying. Like it's, it's, yeah. it's and horrifying. That, and that goes back to the book as well, because there's the, the, the uh, the differences in the orc and uh, the, the the orc communities, and so you have two varying different factions here that are composed to, together. Okay, so so how do you, how good of a job do you think the the movie did with that? Because for those that don't know, I thought there was a very clear difference between the ones that come visually, from Mor- yes, the ones that yeah. come from Mordor and the ones that that Saruman creates. So Saruman creates the Urukai, right, which are the tall and kind of menacing looking orcs. And then Mordor is more of your classic, almost a little more goblin-like, you know, a little more stunted, a little more mm-hmm. bent, less straight-backed. Um, so, but but y'all definitely, yeah, you feel like it got the message across that there are Mordor orcs and there are Isengard orcs working they, together. Yeah, it here. seems like so, it's even in the way that, yeah, they acted. The one, the the Saruman's were definitely more driven and were a little bit more competent. And they can run under the sun, and which the, uh, the mortar orcs can't really do. And oh, the okay. white hand also yeah. helps because that's the identifying mark for, for for lay people. Which speaks to something that we'll talk about throughout today, but the I still rewatching these movies and continuously struck by the visual design of them. Like the ability of the visuals to tell a cultural story, whether it's the Urukai being immediately recognizable with, like Gimli says, their broad shields and how like straight back they are versus something more stunted or it's like like you feel like you know rohan's kind of nordic horse culture just from their armor design or yeah. the elves like leaf like shapes that you'll see later it's well what is stunning we'll get to later design. what is what is the name of the um i guess kingdom that uh i'm bad with all of the gondor names. rohan no the, the guy who was being brainwashed that we'll get to oh it's my phone but coming through my computer um Grima, Wormtongue, Thaden, yes, yes, King Thaden. Whenever we get to that, 
that's Kingdom of Rohan. The Kingdom of Rohan. Yeah. What I, I liked loved. whenever we get to that point, one thing that I love, and that's one of my favorite parts, is that you do feel like while the design isn't as lavish as something um, like a lot of the other parts of the trilogy, it's the, there's a certain organization of a city that feels very built, like an infrastructure that yes. feels very constructed. Um, that I liked a lot, but we'll get there. Okay, yeah. So, so then, so yeah. let's let's just okay. So we we see Mary and Pippin. They were the Urukai, which I was so situation. annoyed with them in, and I know they kind of have to be annoying in the first one because they're very, you know, they're they're hobbits and they a bit don't of have a care and leave as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, which got on my nerves a little bit, but th I think that's more my shortcomings of that type of character that I don't like. But whenever they show up here, they have they've matured a lot. You can tell uh, just in the last, I guess, two hours of their own timeline yeah it wouldn't make sense they've gone through some life experiences yeah. in the last couple hours that they've never had before their moment was at the end of fellowship when they purposely made the orcs chase them so that frodo could get away that was kind of their like first very courageous moment first of many to come but they um, make a great transition and with in their first scene i i, I want to know more about what's going on with them and yeah. i want to i want to see them develop more so they were the Urkai. You see him. Is this at the time when he drops the? Uh, does he go ahead and drop the leaf here? The, yeah, the 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 brooch. Bites falls, the brooch. The brooch falls off. And then, then we open with uh, what is almost like a movie trope: the master tracker, Aragorn. He's this man literally has his ear to the rock. They're hundreds of leagues away. He has his ear to the rock, and he's like, "Yeah, they've sped up." <laughs> like, that's that's <laughs> how much of a beast Aragorn is. I I, I love it. I, I know it's a little trope worthy, but like. I whatever I buy it, man, because we're in high fantasy. Oh no, at this it's great. Point. I so always we're dealing with, like, I love movies wherever they have got someone, someone's tracker. They've got a the, tracker with them. Yes, exactly. In the long run, when you're talking about a film, which includes elves and men fighting together, yeah, uh, giant Nazgul's um, riding sit, fell beasts, riding faz fell beast. Uh, you've got giant moving int beings. Um, oh, you've, they're so good. You've got trees, which that was a little unbelievable. Evil in and maniacal and, <laughs> and tying people under their roots. I mean, the idea that a guy could track individuals, kind of like a army ranger, well, it's like you, you, was not that far-fetched. Well, and it, it's also, but the thing is, it's also like you just accept that, like, even though there's a hundred Yurikai, they're running from these three warriors because these three warriors are such beasts that, yeah, they could probably beat a hundred Yurikai, which is kind of crazy to accept, right? Because yeah. orcs look so imposing. But you always got to remember the orcs. They're kind of freshly created. They're probably not as physically adept as they actually look. Like, they look very opposing. They're not the best fighters. Hobbits get a lot of kills on orcs. Like, orcs' power come yeah. from numbers, not from individual skill. Like zombies. Uh, yeah, yeah, not unlike zombies, actually. So, so uh, they're tracking him. And then you have, do, do, how do y'all feel about wide-angle landscape shots with people running over beautiful scenery. Funny, funny you said... There's too much of it in The Hobbit, but they do a good job of it here. Fun, well, funny just, that the Hobbit have, just wasn't executed yeah. well. Yeah. Funny that you say that, because those shots that you are referring to, um, John Rhys-Davies was not involved. He was not there to shoot those. No, it was the little karate guy. Right, and then Legolas of uh, Elendo Bloom had fallen off a horse and broken three ribs. Yep. And but he did him. He did the scenes anyway with the, the broken ribs. With the broken ribs. And then, of course, uh, you know, Viggo Mortensen and Strider uh, had kicked that helmet earlier in filming. And so I loved that. And I so loved, he yeah. had broken his toe. Wait, Dad, did you know the full story behind the kicked helmet? Well, I didn't know until watching it this time. Thank you, Amazon, for that little x-ray thing so you get the trivia whenever oh, you scroll. But uh, okay. it was very – yeah, I had no idea that whenever he kicked it, like his reaction is, I broke my toe yeah. just now. But he plays <laughs> into it. 
which I, I love whenever like an actor does something in a scene and something goes wrong and they use it as like, well, we, I just did that. So we've got to use it as part of the story. So for those that don't know, jump ahead a little bit. When the three discover uh, the burned pile of orc corpses, they're going through looking for the hobbits. Everyone's very frustrated. He kicks a orc head uh, towards the camera. They shot it like a million times. He could not get the kick towards the camera. He couldn't couldn't line it up. He kept missing. And then finally, on the shot where it goes perfectly right past the lens, like Nathan said, when he kicks it, he actually breaks his big toe. But instead of breaking character, he uses the scene. He gives this like anguished fall to his knees. The kick is perfect. The reaction's perfect. The scene ends up being perfect. But then, yeah, that was all before he had to go run for days on end. And he doesn't break it. I mean, if you, I've seen that scene quite a few times, and I did not know, like, oh, you can tell that he kind of goes with his own natural pain. So I guess all I want to say is I I know that it became kind of a meme in The Hobbit, the wide-angle landscape shots and all the walk and everything. But in these movies, I, it didn't break anything. I think for me. though they're they incredible, they're beautiful, and I think they add the epic scale and they're natural. that you're looking Ugh. for, and they, and they are natural. Yeah. And and really, what these guys go on is one of the most legendary runs in Middle Earth history. Like the amount of sheer will, physical and mental, to push their bodies as far as they did, and to run as far as they did, and catch up with the orcs. It is a truly Herculean effort. Um, it makes me cringe. I hate running. It makes me cringe to think about. It. I I've always felt like Gimli, like back at LSU when we used to have to run one tens, and I was terrible at run one tens. I'm, I'm, I I felt it's the exact line Gimli uses. Us dwarves are wasted on long distance. We're natural sprinters. That was me. Like put me ten to thirty yards. That that's my go to. I don't need to run a hundred yards. I don't need to run a hundred leagues. Like poor Gimli. With his short little legs, yeah. legless and Aragorn, they're all long and lithe, and they're just cruising along, and poor little Gimli has to keep up with them, but he does it. He does it because he's tough as nails. That whole crew is tough as nails. Um, so we open them running. They're catching up to the hobbits. And then I believe, do you go back to Sam and Frodo? Yes. So what what comes back to Sam and Frodo before you get to Merry and Pippin almost getting eaten? Are they? Is that when they're in the marsh? Yes. Okay. And is then it, he sees the body. The dead marshes. And follow, don't follow the lights. I think the dead marshes were. Um, Who even put those there? It doesn't seem like it's why from an you... ancient battle. It, okay. No, it's actually from the battle at the beginning of Fellowship of the Ring. Oh, yeah. okay. It is. It is the great battle that ended. Sar- that's ended with Sauron getting his hand, his finger chopped off, and the ring being di- uh, dislodged. That those are corpses from that and, and, thousands and all, of year old. And, and although those bodies were kind of. Um, uh, supernaturally preserved uh marshes do like you know you find like dinosaur bones like tar pits and stuff like you can make the argument that marsh is kind of and there's also an evil in that marsh that probably keeps everything alive there i mean frodo sees a little bit of evil in that marsh the um the inspiration for that the belief is that tolkien gotta be world war one battlefields well world war one trenches you know walking through the 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 whole seeing the dead bodies Uh, shout out to our boy nicholas holt who's gonna do an awesome job as hot young Tolkien in his biopic. Yeah, we'll see. I, I haven't seen oh, anything beyond okay. the original image. But um yeah, yeah, I'm 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 intrigued. Uh but yeah, so so you go to the Dead Marches. I think it does a very good job of one, proving Gollum's worth. Because mm-hmm. without Gollum, there's no way you're oh, making yeah. it through the Dead Marshes alive. He knows the path to follow. Uh two, it reinforced what a miserable journey this is there on on. Walking through a marsh like that would be unbelievably terrible. And then because it's not miserable enough, of course, there has to be some supernatural evil that almost steals away Frodo. And that's not in the book. All the, like, jiu-jitsu, yeah. the, the tri- crazy, trippy, 
green goblin ghost if in the once he gets pulled under. When those eyes go Yeah, those are not actually in the uh in the book. But the uh all those were like vinyl dummies that were underneath the water except for the one guy who does open his eyes and mm. that that guy was real. Um I think it's an incredibly effective cost of war uh image to evoke. It's a good and, point. And also a um a feeling that is evoked through the ends and through other other points in time, which is this is a living a living place where even something when something is dead, it still has life, it still has an in, an impact. Which still is has a th- contribution to society. Yeah, which is throughout Lord of the Rings, you right. think of like the Barrow Whites and uh the the undead army that Aragorn will lead in the Return of the King coming up later. It's a very so it's constantly um the living breathing world, as you said. Uh and then so Hobbit into or uh, uh Gollum ends up saving Frodo, which is very effective because really the, the, the that awkward love triangle of Sam, Frodo, and Gollum, like this is the first of many steps to where Gollum kind of tries to ingratiate himself with Frodo, kind of prove that he is going to be loyal and how he kind of starts to weasel in between yeah. uh well Sam didn't stick to it when Sam. he needed to. Yeah, he didn't. No, look, hey, Gollum saved the day, dude. Gollum saved the day. And then he, he got into the marshes, but while they're in the marshes, you get our first look at the fell beasts and the Nazgul. They're back. You thought the river killed them in movie number one? No chance. Killed the horses. Well, killed did the they horses. show up in that scene? Are they in the marsh? They don't show he, up in the he, marsh. They fly over. Oh, over okay. Because they're like, okay. oh, yeah. we got to right. see what comes into play later with Frodo being able to sense their presence because of the ring and it draining all life from his body. And Would shout out Sam when Frodo's freaking out and frozen because the Witch King's back around him all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. Sam is the one that grabs him and brings him to cover so he can't be spotted. Yeah, but, and um, Sam also comes into play in Minas Morgul later. Yeah, so. the 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 or Minas Tirith, Sorry, the fell. Uh, I really like the fell beast design yeah, too. I do. It's, it's a good kind of eely mm-hmm. type of dragon. Um, it looks like what are those? What are those called? Like tapeworms or things that they yes. pull out of people's bodies? Yes. yes, like a giant with like a fat body and wings all, attached. All yeah. of these things. It's interesting to look back on on two towers as kind of in. We're in this space of of King of uh, Game of Thrones, and interesting to see how the designs of the dragons and how this kind of myth and lure and mythology is now taking cultural root in such a prominent way. Again, and to seek that kind of the, some of those forerunning of some of those designs, yeah, were in two towers. I'm still way behind on Game of Thrones. And then we, uh, yeah, come on, catch up. Uh, so, so from there, I believe then uh, we meet Rohan for the first time. We meet Aemir. We see. So it's kind of interesting from the Dead Marshes, like you said, Brian. The kind of cost of war. Then we see a much more fresh battlefield littered with dead bodies. Well, we get we get introduced to the Rohans and the leader, and you know they save ultimately save Merry and Pippin. Yeah. Because they're the ones who come in and take out the orcs. And it's, you know, when Strider meets them and is like, oh, well, yeah, we took out the group of orcs and there may have been some hobbits with them, it's, you know, about half a mile back or whatever it is. And so when they arrive and they get to the, to the burn pit, essentially, another war, you know, a kind of evocative image of World War One, um, you know, they believe their friends are lost. They kick the, they well, kick and, the bucket. And, well, but, and, then, and then, but you get the flashback scene. You get the flashback scene of how Merry and Pippin escape. Yeah, and and we get to see the fierceness of these these uh, Rohan riders and what they can actually 
do. I mean, yeah, they 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 absolutely slaughter the orcs to a man, and they say that. But before we get First there, there is a oh yeah, okay. Before we but, get yeah, there. but before we get there, we do have to establish because it's important to establish a Amir because he ends up being kind of the Deus Ex Machina a bit in the end. Although it's probably not the correct application of that since it wasn't really unlooked for. But but either way, he ends up saving the day in the end. So, but we need to understand well why wasn't he there in the first place? So we meet him. He's bringing back a, a, a wounded body that we later learn is the king's son. And then we meet this decrepit old king. But first, we get our first look at Edoras, which, in my opinion, that's the Golden Hall. That's the town on the hill okay. where the king lives yeah. in the middle of the valley, surrounded which, by mountains. The windiest set that they dealt with the entire There was time. a lot of wind in those scenes. And that, it might be, which which helps out. Like, oh, that's yeah. why you shoot on location. Because you cannot fake the feelings that you get from that location. And in my mind, that is the single most beautiful location in all of the movies. When, well, how when, big is this kingdom also? Because it felt small. It felt very... Uh, this is when I wish you would have had the map back up there. Um, oh, because, we did have the map last time. Because they... See a little bit of it. Well, what they do, is, especially, and we'll get to this later on, is there is a explicit shot of them pointing to the map and saying, here is Rohan, yeah. And here's Oh yeah. Here's Ministeria. Yeah, yeah. And it's like that was apparently done because New Line was confused. Yeah. The New Line execs were like, um, so are they bringing Frodo to Helm's Deep where they're having this battle? And so they literally Peter Jackson literally hand drew a map and shot, you know, his finger pointing at the two it's, different It's lo- one of the best finger points right. I've ever seen in movie history. And Whenever I think about going over a map, that's a scene that I always think about. Right, and so basically they laid that in with the dialogue over it of them talking and really just reorienting everybody to where they are geographically. No, but, but Nathan, I think if you're looking, I mean, geographically it's a pretty big kingdom, but the deal is that it, um, it is sparsely populated. It is but, a but, but five-day ride. That's kind of in line with all of, I think, the human settlements at this point is that it's almost you're kind of an age in decline. It's not the former glories that was once known in the world. It's not as densely populated. Everything's a bit more spread out, a little more lawless. So from Rohan, I get almost a nomadic type of sparsely populated type yeah, of a farmer okay. community. Yeah. Basically um, agricultural, agricultural community, um, horse base. Yeah. It's a five, five day ride from Minas Tirith to, uh, to, um, Rivendell. So that that's just basically a general guy that any, okay. any places around three to five days ride on horseback. Uh, but to talk more about uh, Edoras itself, that set is all real. That was all made on location, like just, that. Just the house at the top. Oh wait, I, th- I thought they made all the houses around there all as the, well. No, all the houses around that on the bottom of the hill are yeah. all CG. Um, just just the ah. golden hall at the top is actually real. And they had, they were supposed to be doing some night shooting there, and they just couldn't do it because the wind was so heavy, they couldn't get the towers and locked down and all of that. Um, and so they were in, but 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 the the hill in the middle of that plain, in the middle of the mountain range, that, that is all real. That is all real, and the the great hall at the top is real. And that shot in when she, after they learn of the death of the sun, and and she goes out and and the flag rips off the flagpole. Yeah, that was legit. That legitimately oh, happened wow. that the wind was so strong it ripped that uh that flag off the pole and nice nice improv by nature right thank Good you job. god yeah so. yeah straight up sometimes i guess very fortuitous things can happen in filming um okay so so, so we meet amir takes the king's sons back king looks pretty decrepit on first glance yeah grossly long eyebrows very haggard looking very stooped 
And then I don't know if there's ever been a character. I said Gollum with this Gollum earlier, but it applies to Grima as well. Has there ever been a character who just visually gives off more of a greasy or evil vibe than Grima Wormtongue? Yeah, he. Uh, it's kind of weird to think of it. I guess it, in the book, does it go into more of how he got there yeah. and, uh, and how he weaseled his way? Because that's also the type of thing. If, if that type of guy enters into any type of government, you would be like, what? <laughs> no, you can't have a private meeting with the king. <laughs> well, um, but, you know, he's... He, well, I'm sure there were notes taken, and, you know, people were read in on the meeting afterwards. Oh, yeah, 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 I know. Was, I mean, he must have was, done it. He seems smart. That was just totally a thing. Um, so the thing here is that um, one of the things that I love about this whole setup is that he was once a man, and that he had become corrupted, and he had been become the puppet of Saruman, basically. Yeah. Um. And that he probably got more evil looking himself right. along yeah. the way, right. like Sarma. And like there, uh, and there's not Vader. really a definitive time frame given for how long he's been under. Um. It's just that he was under for a substantial enough part part of time that his daughter basically he misses out on his daughter's whole life basically. You talking um, about Thaden. right? Yeah. And um. One of the other things I love about that scene is that you can see the empathy and the desire that he has. That, that Wormtail has for, um, you're going to have to help me with her name. Aramir. Aramir. Um, and that leads to the confrontation. Aowen, excuse me. Aowen. That, that leads to that confrontation later in the movie where she says, you know, your words are poison. See, I don't know, to me, I don't know if it's empathy yeah, from it felt, Grima. It felt it feels weirdly covetous. sexual. It feels it, it, covetous it, it, to it me. Was, it's, it was it's covetous, just, he just, but she has compassion toward him. Does and she? in that moment where they are confronted, there is a look for a brief moment about you know, he Watch was once again. a man, and maybe maybe this is a place where I need to find respite. And then she gathers her strength, and then she says, "You know, your words are poison." And you can see the hurt on his face, and it's just a weird dynamic that this this character who's supposed to be evil and supposed to be you know the king whisperer and you know just I guess being I read that as evil plan, yeah. and then. You know, here he has this very human emotion of rejection, of being spurned by the person that he wants to be with the most. I guess, I guess, I'm, I think I'm kind of with Nathan where I read it a bit differently, and it doesn't make me very sympathetic towards him. Like, I thought yes, he was trying I to think, manipulate her. I think and he it is didn't upset. Work. I think, yeah, he is. And I think he is upset because he got spurned by something he wants. But I don't think that wants come from a place of selflessness. I think he comes from a very selfish place. Like, he covets her, and right. uh, that's kind of his end game. To everything he's been doing, at all. Uh, which, which is funny because it turns right, right around her when she falls for Aragon. Yeah, well, and and Who you wouldn't? know, to me, Grima Grima represents something a, a character that's all too real in human history, which is the evil advisor. You know, someone who everybody around the ruler knows, like this guy's not a good guy. Why is he still like so? Like, why does he have the ruler's ear? But for whatever reason, he does. And you see it all the time. You see it in businesses. You see it everywhere in real oh, life. I, I, everyone knows someone who's got that one person that's around them all the time. So, you know, you really should stop hanging out with. Them. Yeah, but then, the, but then they they don't, right? Yeah. So you, for like, so for however it started, and you, huh? You had your Brian Singers and your Britt Ratner. Oh, Jesus Christ! Hmm. Brian Singer's going to make forty million dollars on Bohemian Rhapsody. It's a hit piece. I kn- it's true, but it is a hit piece. It's not, it's it's put out right now specifically to try and hurt Bohe- whatever small chances Bohemian Rhapsody. I has. hope all chances. Are taken to hurt that movie. Discusses. <laughs> I mean, look, I, I don't think I disagree. Uh, okay, so we meet Grima. Really good intro on him. Meet Theoden. Um, and then we see Aomer and his riders get banished. I need I need the directory. 
This right now, leads them with you, all the names. Oh, okay. Are you sharing a little I'm bit? I'm great with faces, I'm all, which doesn't really make for much if you're not good Car with names. Carl Urban is Aomer. Okay. All right. Aowyn nice. is the girl. Uh, I wish I, could, I should remember the actress's name. I apologize. And then you have Theoden, who is the king. Okay. Played by the captain of the Titanic. Uh, oh, yeah. What's his name? Bernard? Oh, something like that, yeah. Uh, anyway, um, so Carl Urban leaves, and that's what then leads him to fighting the orcs. They just happen to scout yeah. them. They ride them down in the night, and we see Merry and Pippin in a terrifying situation. And what, it, it, to me, what has become one of the more iconic scenes in the movie is when the orcs are fighting over whether or not to eat Mary and Pippin, they all have these excellent, like, Cockney accents. You know, yeah, we want some meats. And they're trying to trying to eat them. And then, uh, like you said, Nathan, the Saruman Urukai leader is uh, disciplined enough where he's going to keep everybody in line. He he's a manager. He, he knows what needs to get yes, done. Exactly. <laughs> he ends up lopping the head of one of the Mordor orcs. And the then they all become line, cannibals. Looks like meat's back on the menu, boys. And this is one... Yeah. Of a few times where I think we see Peter Jackson's roots showing through. Peter Jackson, when you look at like Bad Taste and some of the other early movies he made, he loves super grotesque, super practical special effects. And so when yeah, they start the eating that, that orc, wherever he, the guy comes in with a lawnmower and just plows through I think a house bad full taste. of. Is it? I, maybe so. Where everyone in the village starts turning into like flesh-eating monsters, and he use yeah, it's it reminds me a lot of that. Whenever everyone's like, you know, let's eat this guy. Come on, everyone! And then there's flesh flying all I over mean, the like, place. Yeah, like the intestine. like comical, like yeah, they're like comical. throwing it up exactly. in the air, over the top. Com it's like flying up in the air. The sound effects are all like squishy sounding. Yeah. Uh, but but then Frodo and Sam get almost eaten. They end up escaping thanks thanks Mary to the the orcs. Oh yeah, excuse me, Mary Pippin almost get eaten. They end up escaping thanks to uh, the Riders of Rohan, Aomer and company running them down. And the one orc follows them into the forest, and then they... Well, but, yeah. but, but even before, though, don't we... Doesn't it end with us not sure if Merry and Pippin survive? You know, obviously we assume they do, but it makes it look like the horse is going to uh, yes, going right. to trample them. They Which, do, by the way, that was a great shot whenever... I forget yeah. who, if it was Merry or... I think it might have been Pippin. Whenever Pippin. he goes under the horse. Yes. Like that they pull that off so well. It doesn't look like oh, he was in a green screen and then they just kind of cropped yeah, him more, in. Yeah, more more great uh little tricks of the trade to continue to make hobbits look small. They, yeah. they they do such a good job in these movies. Um so from there then I believe we're back to Aragorn and company and they're still tracking the blood moon is rising. Legolas says oh, a red red sun rises, you know, uh not moon. It says red sun rises blood been spilt on this day, which makes you think. I've seen a lot of red sunrises, so yeah. does that mean that? Well, I, well, so I guess people it are feels dying like all a the platitude. time. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, but whatever. So, uh, sure enough, I wanted someone to roll their eyes. I wanted one of one of the character other characters in the scene to roll their eyes, and I said, like, yeah, like okay, like let's chill out, dude. So, 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 <laughs> so they're running, they're running to go track the orcs. They hear these riders coming. They hide, you know, not knowing what it could be. And hey, look, it's it's Aomer and company. Aragorn calls out to them. And uh, I love this. The riders immediately circle, all very disciplined looking, and then they circle around, spears pointing out them. And I, it's actually one of my favorite parts in the books. It's much shorter here, uh, understandably so, but I, I still really enjoyed it. Uh, the conversation between Aragorn and Aomer and Oh, yeah, that, that was one everybody. of my favorite dynamics whenever he's, you know, trying to size them up because this guy might be a spy. And so trying to just make sure that he is... Uh, There's not a lot of trust, right? That is yeah. one of the main things... In the favor of all the evil forces versus the free peoples in Middle Earth at this time, it looks like trust and communication has completely broken down. It's kind of interesting, right? Because it's it's gone from a very unified world, maybe in the past, 
to where people have become much more nationalistic at this point, right? Tribal. Yeah, Building tribal. Walls. Like, I mean, I, you know, and I don't want to go there because I don't want to bring any modern politics, but it is, there are echoes of like isolationism at this time. And so there are no trusts. So when you see, even though these are humans, an elf and a dwarf, well, that's pretty odd. But, you know, these are not necessarily inherently evil creatures like an orc. Aomer still has a just base level distrust for like, why the hell are y'all yeah. roaming around these lands? Like, you have to be up to no good. Uh, and Gimli ain't taking that crap. I love, uh, oh, this is also where you see Gimli and Legolas, um, their bond is obviously growing, right? Because, mm-hmm. like, in the first movie, you would have you would have never seen Legolas come to Gimli's defense yeah. when Gimli starts talking crap to Aomer, and Aomer says one of my favorite lines, that it would strike off your head, dwarf, if it stood but a little further from the ground. And then uh, Legolas quick draws and is like, you know, you would you would die before your before your blow lands. So you're already seeing that love between the the dwarf and the elf start to crop up there. See, that's that's the type of comedic relief between the two of them. Well, I yeah, like and Gimli's face is hilarious. Yeah. John Reese Davis, he's all of a sudden like, hey, whoa, guys, chill out. I was just talking shit. Like, <laughs> like he's like, I mean, I thought we were just having fun. I was just you know kind of being a dwarf, just a little surly. Uh, but in the end, they end up convincing Aomer that they are friends. I'm trying to remember exactly. What line, how they did it. Do y'all remember? Maybe it's because they said they were tracking the Urukai. Uh, I think, I think it, it's because Aragon, Aragon basically iterates something that when he hints at his lineage that kind of disarms him and says, okay, these guys are these guys are cool. I <laughs> thought they had mentioned something about them looking for their friends or them looking for the hobbits, and right. they like they don't really care about the orcs or anything like that. It was... Uh, I thought that was what kind of disarmed him. Yeah. Either way, they, they end up being like, "Okay, we're kind of cool. We 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 get it." They give him, um, they give him, they give them three horses, and the riders go on their way. A nice final line from Aomer, though: "Do not trust to hope, for it is forsaken in these lands." Basically, gives you an idea of just how low his head's at, and why not? Right? He's been exiled by his own uncle, the king. I believe it's his uncle. Um, Grima rules the land. Orcs are raiding. The king doesn't give a damn. Saruman's obviously evil. The king doesn't give a damn. Uh, so he's he's pretty hopeless at this point. And then our three adventurers go on. They find the orc pit, and that's when they too have a bit of a hopeless moment. As uh, like Amber says, they left none alive. So you basically just assume at that point that the hobbits might have ended up in that burn pile. But who's on the case? Aragorn, Master Wait. Tracker Aragorn. Yeah, Let's I said go. his name wrong. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Aragon, it's a dragon. Aragorn has the spirit of a dragon, so that makes sense. That is true. Thank but you. uh but but Aragorn though, so they do the scene where they Oh, another thing I want to highlight about the burn pile, another Peter Jackson echo, the orc head on the spike. Which oh, has okay, to be yeah. edited out for television. Oh really? Yes, they have what? To, whenever it's on TNT. Orc? They just have the Orc uh, head is like no, they just have the too helmet. violent? Yes, they just oh, have the wow. helmet on the stick. They get it out the head because it's too violent. Oh, yeah. I mean, the tongue is sticking out. The eyes are rolled back. It's like, "Ah." it looks like over the top, almost comical. Like you were saying with the intestines. If they do that. Like you were saying with the intestines flying around earlier. So I love that. That's kind of, to me, that's Peter Jackson just like, he's like a guy in a toy box, right? Every now and then he gets to kind of do what he really, what he would really like to. And that that was fun. Uh, But Aragorn. Is, is is looking around. He's like, oh, wait, he's figuring out how they escaped. And then he sees that they went into Fangorn Forest. Mm-hmm. Which, what is the line that Gimli says there? Like, why would... What, I what forget madness what he says. drove yeah. them there? Which I'm like, well, 
Gimli. I mean, there were there was a battle. There's like a hundred Urkai here, and they were obviously getting murdered. Like, I don't think it's so crazy that they ran into the forest. Which, but dwarves, notorious, you know, we know they don't like trees. They don't like forests and all that. Very untrusting of the woods. Well, um, yeah, see, I didn't know that. And the funny thing is that you know, Jack for caves at this point in oh, the yeah. uh, mines. At this point in the commentary, this is when Jackson's like, you know, we could only put so much of the forest in there, and there's so much more. Yeah. It would make great uh, the great stuff for a TV series. See, I I'm not a huge fan of the forest stuff. Like I, it's all good. There's the nothing stuff, in this movie that I don't like. I love there's, the end stuff. I, I I love the end stuff. Whenever we go there, I never really feel like. Oh, okay. Like, oh, I'm excited to be. Like, with you don't these feel people. like it's menacing, or you don't. You just don't care about what's going on. I don't in the care as much. Like, I care more whenever they end up deciding that they're going to go and they're going to fight. But I never am really all that interested in. And the, see, uh, I'm riveted mm. by it because that is the epitome of Tolkien. Whenever I hear Treebeard talk, I hear Tolkien. Yeah, you know, I, I love. I, him, I, hear, I, I love the character. I, I, I mean, I hear him espousing Tolkien's beliefs, and you know, there is an isolationist self-protectionist point of view that is being espoused there, yeah, which comes from having lived through a conflict that had absolutely no reason to be going on and costing hundreds of thousands of millions of lives. And, and, and we should be clear that Tolkien is adamant, though, that his stories are not allegory. Like, it's not right. supposed to be one-to-one, but he does say they are applicable. Right. And so you can apply his them to different situations. His is very applicable to the way yes. that Treebeard... I do, and world. I love all of that stuff. Like I love us sitting here talking about it and hearing the the just the actual watching it going back to that story. It's like oh, I I no, just I like mean, the other stuff. It, more. It's a little slow from like a pure movie making standpoint. But that's but, the ends. Uh, yeah, the no, ends it is are exactly. large and, and slow and deliberate and everything that they do. I'm not saying it's not by design, yeah. but it's also so. So Harry, 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 Mary and Pippin are in there. Uh, Treebeard saves them, even though. Treebeard doesn't know what he's dealing with. He's kind of like, I don't know if y'all are orcs yeah, or that's not. The, I love how removed. I love how removed <laughs> he is. It's kind of like these guys obviously aren't orcs, man. What are you talking he's about? Like, yeah, exactly. But he's like, he still doesn't know. But he's like, he's never seen them. So he's like, you know, you're still. I don't know what to make of hobbits. You. Yeah, they end up getting him. He's like, the white wizard will know what to do with you. I've got to plug something in over there, so I'm walking away from. That. All right, go for it. Um, I will say this about Treebeard. Uh, John Reese Davies. I look. Treebeard's poetry, Treebeard's character, it's so well done. I think John Reese davies nails the voice. The sound design is excellent. I think you can almost, I like the almost labored breathing type of feel simply because that's what trees do for our earth, right? They breathe in carbon dioxide and they spit out oxygen. You can almost like hear that in Treebeard's voice. But my favorite part are when Treebeard's poetry, which is that in the original cut? Uh, no, not I all didn't think it. so, right? Not and, the extended poetry right. scenes. Right, and some of it was written by Fran and some of it is from the book. So what I love about it is not just the content of it, but whenever you read Tolkien's books, you always hear about like these songs like that evoke, um, like for instance, I was rereading Fellowship to Alice, and then the Bear White scene, they talk about this this song the Bear Whites are singing, and it evokes like grim, dark feelings. And when you hear about Treebeard's poetry, it evokes like ancient and forest feelings. And so as he's reading them in the movie, you're then just getting these unbelievable beautiful alien shots of these vast forests, right? Like these forests that it's like, does that even exist on earth? Cause it's so unlike anything that we see in our everyday lives and the poetry combined with Reese Davies voice. And by the way, that's Gimli John Reese Davies is combined with the poetry combined with his voice combined with the shots. I think it just works together perfectly to do something that's very hard to do in movies where in books you can explain that context. Like, Oh, it evokes these feelings. 
visually the movie to me managed to evoke those same feelings which is really excellent visual storytelling yes and and again in the commentary he says that like Treebeard was one of his big, biggest concerns when he took on the project and they he had commissioned Weta to work on it very early on and a gentleman came in this is 97 98 you know very early pre-production came in with the drawing because there aren't a lot of drawings in Lee's paintings or anywhere else of Treebeard he just drew it to a T. Wow. And so they just, the first shot, first try, perfect, exactly what he wanted. And so he just used that uh, and gave it to what and said, here, let's start let's start working on on the digital for Treebeard. Um, all this stuff, as I said, is fascinating. And I love the conversation. And I love the conversation. And part of it is informed by these kind of discussions that, you know, were happening in World War II. Not just in World War One, but in World War Two about when do we get involved? At, yeah. w- at, at, at what line? Point. At what line are we okay? Like, it, w- with, at what point? Well, and that's if the you're point still a bystander, with, are you complicit? The part right. with the the ends where it is more towards them having to make a decision. I am totally in at that point, and and I love that. In the same, um, and getting tied I love, up yeah, with the roots. Getting tied up with the roots is a Tom Bombadil thing. Yeah, that was a shout out to Old Man Willow, which right. I love. Shout out to Tom and Old Man Willow. I just reread that chapter to Alice and Tom Bombadil. I, I, I absolutely understand why he's not in the movies, but for anybody who's a Lord of the Rings fan, if you haven't read the books, the Tom Bombadil chapter alone is worth it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, okay, so so the hobbits go in there. They leave with Treebeard. We hear about this white wizard. We see the back of the white wizard. We see the glow. Yes, the glow. And then uh, and then eventually, the well, I think we actually jump. Straight to Frodo and Sam at the gates of they they're at the Black Gate. They've made it. Uh, I love Frodo and Sam's direct you line. Just gone right in. Yeah, I love their direct line commitment to the quest. Right, it's like the most imposing looking evil a gate that is so large that they have to have cave trolls spin this giant mechanism to open it. They have a full army marching in there. And Sam and Frodo are so balls to the wall that they're about it, to just, like, sprint inside. It's the point, I think, also, where the audience is fully on board. Like, okay, Gollum needs to be here. You yeah, guys are yeah. not... You guys you don't, don't know what have you're doing. what it takes to get there. Like, you have no idea what you're doing. Uh, I think the most important thing to highlight from that is just simply that. And, and so this is where they're looking at the Black Kate. Sam slides down. He's stuck in the rocks. Frodo goes down. He covers himself with the cloak. Uh, and, and that's all I really want to highlight is, A, I love the cloak special effect. Yeah, it's... And they get it... the. It works perfectly well. You expect them to cut to another shot so that they can, you know, yep. mask everything together. But it's like it's there, and then same yeah. So it looks like a rock, and then they they pull it back and it just close. Now I was wondering when they did that shot. I don't remember from any behind the scenes stuff. Was that a physical shell of a rock that they'd kind of attached a blanket underneath to make it look CGI. like that, or was it CGI? Okay, so it was CGI, and then they just then it they works just really it well. It it does work very well for the second time. Galadriel's gifts, saving the hobbits mm-hmm. on this uh, on this journey in Mordor. We're gonna keep count of that. And so I always gave the cloak view- and the rope. And I always viewed that more as like Gollum having his own reasons for wanting to take them on his path. Th- that is a good point. I don't think Gollum's reasons are fully altruistic. Uh, but then again, Gollum's ultimate thing is he doesn't want Sauron to get back the ring because he wants the ring and, and don't he, come back. But he also knows he also knows that like okay, Leave if, don't come back. But that's the thing, right? He also knows that if they go into the Black Gate like that, they're going to get caught. Sauron will end up with the ring, and he'll never have another chance at it. Uh, so he he convinces them to go a different way. Um, when do we get to? Is the Gollum scene 
then or do we go back to the Aragorn trio, right? And they meet the White Wizard. They go into Fangorn. It's very scary. And they meet the White Wizard. Their backs are turned. They kind of sense him. Uh, When y'all first saw the movie, did y'all know who the White Wizard was? They, it sounded like Saruman to me. Yes, because do that's, they use Christopher Lee's they voice? Do. In they that? do. They right? use Christopher Lee's okay. voice and I they use Christopher so. Lee's eyes uh, and his hands. Ah, uh, okay. It, okay. Just, I it so. feels uh, even when watching it this time. Every time I always try and take note of that. It's like, is this real? It is totally his voice, and I feel like they were. They're trying to trick you. And they did. Right? They, I mean, yeah, they got they me do. the first time. Um, what I love is we immediately see how powerful. Uh, Gandalf the White is. Oh, he's so with shiny. How, well, not only that, but with how he handles. Well, his shiny, his true shiny scene is coming up soon. Yeah. But with how he handles Aragorn, Gimli, and Legolas. Remember, these are these same three warriors that had a hundred Urukai on the run, and yet Gandalf uh, smacks away Gimli's uh, throwing axe and Legolas's arrow and burns the sword out of Aragorn. Like he handles them like they were children. Yeah. Like they were nothing. They couldn't have even touched him. And uh, and then we learn, and even Gandalf doesn't really kind of know that. Oh wait, I'm I'm I Gandalf. Love, That's what they that makes called. me so sad that he can't remember. Or that you can tell that he's not the same person. He well, is, he's, but he's not. he's such a man. He's been on. He, he's such a man of, or he's not a man, but he's such a being of purpose that, and he's been doing it for so long that yeah, I think some of his identity gets lost in that transition. Well, and he's basically an extended so, cameo. A chunk of movie. it is lost. It feels like it feels like a different character. I mean, it, it is, is a different character. character. It is. Um, Jinx can't talk the rest. <laughs> um and I I you know he's basically an extended cameo in this movie um, yeah. because he comes he basically runs Wormtail off and then he he leaves and says hey I'll be back on the sunrise of the fifth day so so let's talk and let's then, talk about the uh, the Wormtail scene then but my my thing with with Gandalf the White is that my favorite thing about it is the line that he uh, he utters at the beginning when he when he sees them is which is. I am Saruman as he was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. I am Sar- good point. I, I, I it also am, justifies the use of Christopher Lee's right. voice and hands and everything. Right. I, I am I am the White Wizard that that he was supposed to be. And uh, so then Gandalf hits the most beautiful whistle in cinematic history. Real horse trained to hit that exact mark in front of of Gandalf, in front of the uh, wow. McKellen. Yeah. Beautiful horse too. Shadow yeah. effects, all white. <laughs> I love that name. It's, it's a great name. It's a f- yeah. It, it makes me laugh a little bit. Shadow facts. It's just bitch. It does. I mean, whenever I get a little. That's a good fantasy name for Shadow a horse. Facts. Shadow Fox. Shadow Fox is is you know, it's a better name. Than... It sounds like if you want to get a copy of all of the faxes that have been <laughs> no, sent from a no, certain that machine. Is not true. true. That is not true. <laughs> I refuse to support that. It. It's spelled like well, that. Well, no. If you, want to, if you want to install Shadowfax, I have that. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> now you're ruining the name for me. Uh, anyway, Gandalf looks fabulous, white on white. I mean, mm-hmm. just like as clean as could be riding Shadowfax. They ride up to Edoras, and um, it's, it's got a bad vibe and in, in the this, city when they go in there. Right. And in this, I think it's either in this time period or after they, they dispel Wormtongue, that Gandalf and Aragon have a very deep conversation that kind of pushes Aragon toward where he needs to be, which is on that's his a bit back. later. That yeah. so that's that's after so 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 they show up at the throne room, they give up all their weapons. It's hilarious watching Gimli and all they've so also many weapons. purporting the Second Amendment a little bit. Thank you, Peter Jackson. Yep. Second Wait, Amendment support. They should have kept go. their weapons. <laughs> well, but you would not separate an huh. old man from, from his, his walking That's stick, great. I love you? whenever whenever Worm that's his name, Wormtongue, right? Yes. Uh, whenever he uh whenever he says, You didn't take his didn't staff take his staff because he immediately knows they're screwed. But 
if you notice. I think Gamlin didn't take his staff but, on but, purpose, but though. Because he kind of yeah, looks and look, he gives him like, a, he's like, he's good. But, but if, if, if <laughs> you're you notice, good, you're good. he doesn't walk with it front out when he walks into the throne room. He has it down, tilted down by his side with the point turning down. So you can't really see what it is. Yeah. Because if he'd have walked in straight away with the staff fully, fully visible, you know, he would have said, hey, take that away from me. Yeah, also, uh, it kind of just shows how much bullshit the old man in the staff line right. is because he's not even using it right. as, a, uh, as a walking stick. So then you have you have the, the 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 three go beat up all the bad guys while Gandalf's walking up on Theoden. Uh, and you think, okay, Gandalf's just going to cast Saruman out of there, and it doesn't work. Saruman starts laughing, and this is where Gandalf has his glow moment. Yeah. He throws back the gray cloak, and oh, it's like the it's like literally it's just like shining and and I just kind of love it because everybody in the room's like, <gasps> and like Theoden and Saruman and everybody can't handle it. And indeed, Gandalf ends up casting Saruman out, looking fabulous, looking excellent while doing so. Uh, how did you all feel about the special effects between just in that whole scene? Uh, to me, it was very effective where you didn't need to do anything over the top. It's just simple camera cuts. Oh, yeah. No, and I, I thought whenever watching it, because I think I got to that point and realized I'm watching the uh, the theatrical version. I need to rewatch this whole thing again. But it, it, it does. I really like how it's just in that scene, there's probably just a massive light shining on the actors. And they're like, all right, action. They're just. Uh, yeah, uh, no, exactly. Right. And like when he casts Armon out. There's no, I mean, the anti-aging effect we'll get to, but it's really just a camera cut to the yeah. Saruman flying backwards, and it really gets the message across that, okay, this guy was fully possessed. Now he's not anymore. Um, just awesome filmmaking, knowing that it's probably going to feel yeah. lame when filming it, but it's going to edit right? together. Right, exactly. Like, when you're shooting that, it would feel like, oh, what's this going to look like? Uh, but but it works perfectly. Now, what is an actual special effect? The Theoden kind of de-aging process Which works. is seamless. Yeah, and it's makeup, and it's shot Four different times. Oh, really? So it's kind of like a huh. so so it's so it's different stages of makeup with digital in between. No, it's straight. Like he has the old makeup shoot, then next day come yeah. back middle aged makeup. Yes, shoot, and then normal makeup, and, and then they do shoot. they just blend it. But right. I'm saying they have to blend it digitally yes. at least. But but it works. That's why it holds up so well. Then that it's not purely digital. Okay, so he's been going through this transition for a long time. Yes, right. Okay. Because whenever I see it, I think someone must have, like, that's, he looks way different. So yeah. it makes sense if it's been years. It's not like. Uh, uh, no, he looks, he looks night and day different. Yeah, like, if he, had, if he had gone through that physical transformation in under a year, nobody would have been like, you know what, this is okay. But I think <laughs> yeah. because it happened over such a long time, like, oh, he's just getting old. And then you see, oh, wait, he really should. One thing I love, too, and this You're speaks 40, to just, right? This speaks to, like, ancient old fantasy is. How Gandalf's like, maybe your old hands would remember their strength better if he gripped your sword. And, and it's he's just manipulating so... him into going after Wormtail. Yeah, but Wormtail. I but I but I also just I, I just love the um there's something in ancient high fantasy about the power of a sword. And not just any sword, but like specifically your sword or a sword of great make mm. that has runes of power inscribed on it. And and I love Thaden's sword visually, the 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 horse kissing pommel type mm -hmm. of deal i think is beautiful um and and sure enough Thaden grabs that sword and he seems to come alive and he's going after grima and this is the question i would i would have, I would have killed him so that's what i've wrestled with should aragorn have let Thaden kill grime yeah i don't get whenever aragorn it's not it's, it's aragorn goes to stop him i uh I, I wish you would have let him go i mean i get why he, he didn't. says enough blood has been spilled on his account mm -hmm. yeah it's a high road situation and it's interesting so i just listened to this book 
Finding Eichmann, I believe it was called. And it's manipulating about, him for years. It's about uh, this. It's about Israel hunting down um, one of the main Nazi war criminals, this guy Adolf Eichmann, and they find him in Brazil. And you know, and at first, just like made a movie about this. Yeah, yeah, that's what I heard. Right, that's what led me to the book. So they're like, "Well, oh, should we just Operation?" Yes, Operation Eichmann. I think is what they called the movie. Or final Oper- Operation Finale. Yeah. Okay, that's what it was. Uh, it's but, really but, bad. But either right? way. Kingsley's I think it had like okay. a 60 on Rotten Tomatoes okay. or something. Kingsley and Isaac are okay. In okay. Uh, but 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 either way, so they hunt him down, and they're talking about, like, okay, should we just, like, kill him? Like, I mean, that's what he deserves, right? But they're like, no, we need to capture him, bring him back, and give him a fair trial on Israeli soil to show that we are better than our enemies. And the thing is, if Theoden just kills Grima there, although it's just and although that is deserved— it does kind of validate some of those lower civilizational tactics, right? Those killing without a trial, those killing those who you're kind of just uh, maybe I power. Like it, it makes you kind of the same as your enemies in a way. If you're just killing without discretion, I feel a uh, probably not that he should have killed him. I think I might not like that. Have let him go. <laughs> that they just let him go, primarily because he's a king of a kingdom that is in serious decline. It seems. The fact that he is, you know, back again, I feel like there needs to be some type of dominance to uh, restore the morale around there. And the fact that he just lets him go, I feel, is kind of weak whenever you should show strength. And and even, and even, and, and. I feel like you should have given him a try. And look, to me, you you could argue that maybe that Aragorn doesn't really know the better parts of leadership at that point. He's just speaking more of a. It's kind of a merciful human being than anything else. Because, look, maybe the better part of Leisure was to capture Grima or to kill him. Because Grima ends up getting a lot of people from Rohan killed. Like, he tells the weakness. He he tells what they're going to do at Helm's Deep. He tells Saruman exactly where to attack and how to attack Helm's yeah, Deep. Yeah, they've so, got that little... Uh... That little sewer thing that you yeah, can go through. That, that Grima knows about. So, so no, I mean, it's... I'm not I just saying, felt a little bit weird that he then turned around and left and, you know, Aragorn wasn't like... Aragorn wasn't like, we should, you know, but still get him. Like, yeah, hold well, on to the guy. Exactly. So, that's, so that's my deal. I'm not saying that that's the right answer because for all the high-minded not, philosophy of you want to prove that you are better than your enemies and you don't want to stoop to their level, like, there's a very easy case to make that, no, they were they, they should have killed him. Uh, but they don't. And he gets away. and uh, By running away. He gets away, but burned yeah. away. And then, and then we get to the funeral scene. Theoden tragically learns that his son has died. To me, it's one of the most effective the emotional. Yeah. It's one of the most effective emotional moments of the entire trilogy is when he says no son should have to bury his father and starts crying. Because he had just been playing with his own son on that hillside before they shot that. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. And, oh, wow. Uh, and That's the, really touching. And the flowers are all, of course, added in digitally. Um, the which the flowers are I, I don't know. I felt like whenever that came in it, it decorated the frame really beautifully. They, what did y'all think about Eowyn's uh funeral song? All of it all of the I like don't the empowerment the song didn't stick out to me in particular. Oh really? For, yeah. The moving and the empowerment of the shot, the idea of the men transitioning the body to the women and allowing the women to be the ones to lay him to rest. It gives the empowerment and this mystical love, this mystical unconditional love and support and affection and understanding that Tolkien imbues all of his women with throughout his his work. And I just thought the song is beautiful. It resonates really well. And I think that that imagery of men handing them off 
uh, the men handing him off to the women for the women to take care of and stand to at that last hour or that last moment was was very moving. I just think that the whole song um, evokes some feelings that are exactly what you're looking for. Like, it evokes, is, it evokes a cultural, almost Nordic, very almost like, I don't know if masculine is the right word, but 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 a, a, a hard society, right? Like it's it's kind of a harsh song. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily what you would call a beautiful song, but I think but I think it evokes kind of the feeling of Rohan these these hardened men who have been there for a while. Um, but it's also very haunting mm-hmm. sounding and and very heartbreaking. And, and it comes and from Awen, a pain. Yeah, and she absolutely mm-hmm. nails it. She does an incredible job with it. Um, and so now we get to funeral scenes done. And now it's time to go forward. And this is where I think we start to move forward a bit. And and Gandalf is talking to Theta and they're kind of game planning about what they need to do. And um and, and this is where you have the Aragorn and Gandalf scene where they kind of reset and kind of catch, you know, catch up on okay, what's going on right now? Where do we sit? We're in trouble. But our great ace in the hole is that Frodo and Sam are heading towards Mount Doom. And the last thing that the enemy thinks they're gonna do is destroy the ring. Uh, yeah, I, I liked that they gave that perspective because I didn't really, I did not have that, um, for some reason I just had a view that, you know, they're kind of, they know that the hobbits are out there with the ring. So I did like that, that put everything in into scale for me. Uh, yes, and, and the, enemy, the, enemy, the enemy obviously does know that a hobbit has the ring because that's why Merry and Pippin were supposed to be brought back to Saruman yeah. unspoiled and unkilled. But it's nice to know that the enemy cuz i had assumed the but enemy was the aware details. of what was going on yeah yeah, yeah. so uh it get, it put it put a lot more weight i gave, well, i was kind of surprised the weight that it put on frodo and uh well i'll let you know that Fro- i mean he straight up says like frodo is the hope to everything right. like like, right. like the entire world hinges on the success of frodo's no, mission no no he's he's the bitch right now and the best uh the best to me some just very subtle acting by Ian McKellen was when he learns that sam went with him yeah and and yeah. he's like oh Oh, and you can tell he's like, he's like so happy. He's just like so like touched. Yeah. That Sam would put himself in that situation. Like he, 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 I think he feels simultaneously. I think he feels like pity, kind of. You know, he feels badly for them because he knows they're probably going to die. But I think he also is just continues, despite the fact that he's been alive forever. He continues to be impressed with the depth of courage that hobbits can display when kind of pushed to it. And it's all involved in just this like little facial tick from Ian McKellen it's genius doesn't it and it feels really strange to think that from his from Gandalf's perspective at that point you know Frodo was going alone and at the beginning like at the end of Fellowship of the Ring it's a surprise that Sam's gonna go with him like I can't imagine Frodo doing this on his own even getting to the point where he meets Gollum on his own no he would have been screwed you'd have been screwed he needed the power of friendship and and support yeah now they have to make the decision to go to Helm's Deep which is yes. which in the books is forced upon them by the wolf attack on on Rowan to kind of just see I haven't read two towers in years it, I need to reread two towers it really just invokes to him that in his new state attack. that we are vulnerable we need to move to, to so it's not territory. like the, in the movies they want him to ride out and meet him and they paint Theoden's decision as arguably one of weakness although I think it was a pretty solid decision right it's a political decision yeah it's a, it's a tactical military decision at that point to move to Helm's Deep but in the books it's Perpetuated by the wolf attack, which we still get in the movie. Yeah, but we get it in a different place. So, so, so they go to Helm's Deep, and this is what I love because Gandalf leaves him at this time. He's going to go hunt down Eomer, and he has one of my favorite lines of the entire trilogy, and it just really speaks to Gandalf's character. 
he talks about how he's always been known as the Grey Pilgrim. He's wandered all over Middle Earth. And then he has this line where he says, 300 lives of men, I've walked this earth, and now I have no time. Like, imagine that feeling. You've been alive for thousands of years. You've been unceasing in your quest to try to defeat evil. And despite the fact that you've been allowed forever, now you have, like, a couple of days. Like, that that would be such a mind Like, yeah. that's crazy. Too much to do and not enough time to do it in. Exactly, exactly. Even though he's had unlimited time, right? He's immortal. Like, he's lived forever. He's a Maiar, maybe. Uh, so I love that. Unfortunately, y'all, I do think this is where the movie starts to drag in the middle a little bit. Uh, yeah, it's where I start to. I'm. I'm already. I mean, it's been. It's been a few weeks since I've seen the movie. This is where I really get spotty in terms of. Exactly. It takes takes too much out of Helm's Deep. You you take too much time in Helm's Deep setting all getting there, setting up the bomb, putting the putting the establishing shot of the of the sewer. You know, Aragon. I do really like that Ar- because I really. I mean, I love anything that has to do with the heist and the little explaining of how we're gonna get in there. Yeah. I really. I really love that part. Whenever. I love that type of stuff. I, 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 I don't mind any of that. To me, it's more of the, and I get, it's just kind of how the story lines up. Like, all the different threads we're following just all kind of have lulls. And I just mean from a pure action. It's like, it's a lot of setup, which the ends up paying is, off relatively well. Well, the setup is really, really great. And it's very memorable. But that's, and I think there's a certain point where you know where everything is going to go right. nothing's going to be very it's predictable at this point and it's a little frustrating that it takes another 30 minutes to get the action but going that's what, but that's what jackson says in the commentary every great war movie amps up the tension you need the oh, calm yeah. you need the calm before it, the storm it builds up to it and so well we, that was we, yeah like what saving private ryan has a, a lot of that right. and the i think the thing is just if you're gonna you do need that in terms of you whether or not it it's still compelling, way. I think it kind of just drops the ball in a, a compelling bit. way. And again, that that they admit that that goes back to the fact that that they had they felt they were four to six weeks behind. Well, look, we have three threads that we're following, and Sam and Frodo hit a bit of a, a lull. They they hit a lull where they get kidnapped and by yeah. Faramir and company. And there's a lot of great stuff in there, and, like and there really is the Gollum conversation between Smeagol and Gollum, and oh, which and, we haven't talked about. We, let's and, go ahead and talk about that and, now. And and the fact that like Gollum is like leave. And never come back. Yeah. Yeah. And I love and how he is. He's like, he's, I mean, you do have two sides in there, but he's trust. insane. Yeah. He's, he's pretty he's much a crazy to person. Trust. True dual personality. He's starting to trust uh, uh, Frodo. Yeah. And he's starting to believe that he can be loved unconditionally, even in this monstrous state. And he chases away Gollum for a period of time until they get captured, and until he gets abused again, and until he believes that Frodo turns on him. In which case, Gollum comes back with a vengeance. One of the most heartbreaking scenes uh, to me in all the movies is, so we, we see the scene with the dialogue with himself, which Andy Serkis nails. The camera cuts are great. I like also, how they, in, terms of the, in terms of the editing, whenever it, because you go from a place where he's talking to himself just, you know, like this, like you actually see him just you see switching him in one shot. switching from, yes. Yeah. And then it moves into like, okay, we're really going to have one person have a conversation with himself yes. and cut it like it's, Two people there. Like you, it yes. goes. It does that wonderfully. It it really reemphasize. It just emphasizes. And then and then they don't do the final cutaway after the final line. Yeah, he's so just you know, gone. Like oh, he's gone. Like this is just Smeagol now. And, and so that's all very effective. And then it looks like they you know they, they do the rabbit thing. They trust each other. Yeah. Uh, oh, potatoes. Boil them, mash them, stick them in a stew. Great yeah. line. Um, and it's nice. It's really nice whenever it's just Smeagol. He seems like a he seems like a, an ugly 
dog who you want to ugly still, lovable. You're never gonna dislike any dog, even if it's really ugly. Yeah, but he's like so mangy Cats looking. You still maybe story. couldn't fully trust him. But uh, like, but but he seems sweet he still enough. looks scary whenever he's beating that fish in there. I don't want to go near him. <laughs> uh, okay, so then they get kidnapped by Faramir. And they say they don't, you know, Gal Frodo and Sam are trying to be super careful. We learn about Boromir dying, um, which we'll get more to in a second. But but I do want to talk about when Gollum then feels betrayed or Smeagol because Faramir finds him and, and, and Frodo kind of sets Smeagol up. He's like, look, you have to trust me. Like, come yeah. here, I'm here. And you can see almost like an animal that's a bit hesitant. Smeagol's looking at him like, are you sure? I don't know. I don't know. And then sure enough, he ends up getting choked and... Kind of beaten, and, and and like Brian said, it really does allow the Gollum character to come back with a vengeance because he gets to come back and be like, I told you so, Smeagol. You are unworthy of love. You cannot trust anybody. Anybody, hobbits lie. Anybody that you trust will eventually break your heart yeah. in the end. And it is the final breaking of Smeagol. Like, it, it is what guarantees that there is no hope of redemption for this character. And that's a little hard. Like, the pain that he has in his eyes and his actions and how he looks and when he's curled up in the corner and he's crying and he's switching back and forth between two personalities is it's horrifying. And, right. And the and the torture um that Faramir does uh to Smeagol was actually way worse in the yeah. original cuts and the original edits and even in the extended cut is much more mild than what they had originally planned. But, you know, that's scary to think about because you do feel so deeply for Smeagol as he's sitting there being accosted by these taller, stronger men. For no other reason than just existing. Just existing. Yeah. Why is the forbidden pool so forbidden? Like, what's yeah. <laughs> wrong? Why are you supposed to die if you go swimming in that pool? It looked like a know. nice little waterfall setup, but sure. Fantasy, right? Sometimes things are <laughs> uh sometimes things are forbidden. Um, okay, before we move on from the Faramir story, I do want to talk about what is my favorite deleted scene in all the trilogy. What is your favorite deleted scene? Uh Boromir and Faramir and the flashback to Osgiliath. I'm glad that you mentioned this. Is the only shot in the entire trilogy with all three of them together. Bear, uh, Denethor, For Faramir, and Boromir, you mean? Yes. Yeah. It is the only shot in the entire trilogy with all three of them. And it is when he is on his way to meet the Fellowship. Yes. No, yeah. It's, it is, it's literally it is, the last time that Faramir and Boromir see, see each, each other, other alive. And and it gives you, it starts to let you in on the secrets of Minas Tirith. Um, because up until this point, we've only seen Minas Tirith in Fellowship as Gandalf is going there to get the scrolls yep. and and do some investigating, it starts letting you in on the fact the king is an uneasy king. Yep. It, it, this is whenever he gives him the assignment to go and... Right. Yeah, okay. yeah, that was not in the original cut. The original that okay. entire scene where... That is you really see, good. You see Sean Bean rallying the army after yeah. they've taken back a Skiliath, and he's like, remember, brother, today is a day of celebration. And I do love the family dynamic. It, I love how that they that every now... I mean, yeah, it's an epic movie, but whenever it, it has these smaller family dynamic things that everyone can relate to, it's like, oh, yeah, you like him more. I well, know, and, I get and, it. And, so, and that's the problem and is that, that like the fellowship. movie, the Two Towers loses so much by not having that in the original cut. Right. Because it establishes Denethor, like you said, uneasy ruler, very insecure, the family dynamics. It makes Boromir infinitely more sympathetic. Yeah. Like, he is the hero of Gondor. His his father, his king, who he wants to do right by. Denethor is... He's George W. Bush. He's a better ruler than even the movies give him credit for. But, like, Boromir, when, when he's telling him, like, look, you are the great hope for Gondor. You have to go get this weapon and bring it back here. Yeah. It is literally our only hope. It's like a nuclear weapon. Yeah, it's you now know that Boromir is not just a simple man who fell into temptation in the first movie. These are the type of external pressures that he has placed on him. It also fleshes out Faramir and his eventual decision-making and how 
impactful it is to him to let the ring go. Which in when the his books, brother couldn't, when his dad wants right, him to. Which in the books is not a hard decision for him. He lets them go. Yeah. He does. He does not tarry on that decision. It yeah. is not a a weighted decision for him. They had to add to that for the movies to draw out a more dramatic tension for the character. But in the in the books, he's just not tempted by the ring at all. And they were afraid that that would make the ring lose power. Yeah, no, no. I think I think it's well importance. handled in the yeah. movies. I think it's very well handled. And you know, with 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 the family setup that they have, you would be feel a ton of pressure. Like like Dinith was telling Boromir, like this is the great hope for Gondor, and we trust you, and everybody's relying on you. You have to bring the ring back. So him going after Frodo now at the end of the first movie makes so much more sense. It makes him more sympathetic. Dinithor established Faramir and his problems. I just, my favorite scene. My favorite scene. Um, so we feel really bad for Smeagol. Um, next, I think we should jump to, so Frodo and Tim are doing that. Merry and Pippin are just with the Ents. Anything to say They're there? They're waiting on the okay, council. They're gathering the council together. They're Even Mary and Pippin are a little annoyed with how slow things yeah, are I mean, moving. Yeah, there. like they're when it's nighttime night. and you're like, okay, if y'all decide to, like, we just finished saying hello. It's like, well, Jesus, guys. <laughs> I mean, we all have meetings in the workplace, right? Everybody hates meetings. Like, what are, what are we yeah. doing here? <laughs> but trees are slow. They're ancient. Yeah, um, he explains that. Ints. Yes. There is a very ints. distinct difference between ints and trees. I am no tree. I am an int. Um... And then the other group is traveling to Helm's Deep. And even though I like the wolf scene, I think the action's pretty cool. It's pretty fun. How did you feel about the false finish again with another lead character in Aragon being thrown off the off the side of the cliff? I, I just I don't think I'm never a any huge of fan it, of that type of thing. See, to me, this uh, is where I don't mind the false finish aspect. Uh and and you know, they needed to get him in almost a hallucinatory state so right. they could do these Arwen scenes and they could have him um they 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 they, they, they want to establish a bit of a love through line. I just don't feel a lot of the Aragorn Arwen emotion. Do y'all like no? Like I, it's well, it's not quite no. Attack of the Clones bad, but it's not. There's not a lot of warmth there. I, it I feels don't a feel cold. anything for either I of feel, them. Yeah, it feels a little cold. Part of the problem for me is that the age difference is so pronounced at the time on screen. Oh really? See you, that you I don't can think that tell that he is a much older man well he's 87 brian jeez Jeez, i know (laughs) i know but like um, actually she's like thousands thousands of years years at that point (laughs) but but like just in terms of like Liv tyler was in her 20s at that point Vigo mortensen was already in his 40s yeah so i mean yeah i and that's the thing it's not because attack of the clones that's just people not acting well with bad dialogue like that's there's a bigger level there you mean you don't think that she liked you watching her (laughs) yeah Like the it's a conversation is, for another day. It's not badly played. I just look like I look at I look at Anakin and uh, Padme, and I, the two of them look attractive. They're the same age. Like I can see them falling off. When I look at the two of them with good dialogue in this movie, and you know everything is staged very well, I just I look at the two of them and like I don't really I don't see. I don't it. I don't know if it's even a natural chemistry between them. I don't think I just don't think that the um she gives she gives off an ethres an ethereal. 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 It's a weird word. Yeah, she 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 gives off an ethereal uh, presentation. You she feels not quite as much as Blanchett, but she feels like. And maybe that's why we. And maybe that's why we can't relate. Don't touch her. Yeah. And maybe that's why we can't relate. But you know what? To filmmakers' credit, I think that's what they're going for. It just makes me not be able to relate to the love story. Like Thaden crying over his dead son. Smeagol crying about his trust being broken. Those touch me emotionally. This doesn't do when a lot. When Aragorn is so, he's such a driven character, even whenever he his purpose changes, he's so driven yeah. that the idea of him being in love 
feels a little bit odd whenever it's a good point. That's a good point as well. And I think that, you know, he's just a... Like, I wonder what it's like when Arwen and Aragorn finally had to just sit down and, like, live a couple hundred years together, <laughs> like, in peace. Like, when they weren't just constantly well, 80, fighting these, like, epic battles. You know, I don't like onions and the eggs. Old, and they typically live to be 150. Oh, I thought Numenorians lived to be around 300. I thought it was, like, 150. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not up to date on my encyclopedic knowledge. Me neither. But, I mean. Me neither. You know, that, that sh- those establishing shots are from, like I said earlier, from the epilogue, from the. Now, now, one thing, though, that these scenes do do is it does show that even though Eowyn's very thirsty for my mans, uh, he is taken, not going anywhere. She's kind of yeah. shocked when she hears that he's 87. And, and he never <laughs> he never really entertains the notion. Yeah, yeah. No, but, no, no, I no. mean. Uh, even when she tells him, with, I love you, right. he kind of gives her a look like, mm, it's kind of well, weird. But like, Rowan, but, like, that community, you could easily see how being around men of that ilk for all of your life. And then Strider comes in, and like Strider is the epitome of all yes, of that. Yes. Yes. And like martial, honorable, and chivalric. And he's not related to you Chivalrous. at all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not, yeah. Exactly. He's not he's your not cousin or to your you brother. So like, yeah, I can totally see how that. Could no, be a thing. I get it, man. I get it, man. She's look. She's young. She's a normal aged human being. Like it's easy to fall for Aragorn. I absolutely see why. Um. So, yeah. so you have the wolf attack. The only thing I want to highlight here from a pure filmmaking standpoint is. Couple things. So when Aragorn falls off, you know the scene where he's floating down the river. He actually did almost that, drowned. and he almost drowned. He was underwater for almost a minute. He Which got Jackson stuck. Says he did not know, but Fran did because she was the one directing the scene. Yeah, he got stuck in like an eddy or something underwater, and they started freaking out because he wasn't coming up. They had divers and everything there, but he wasn't coming up. And then finally, his body popped out again, and he's still acting. And Vigo was still like limp, like just floating along when he came out the water. Whoa. Yeah, so he almost died there. And then the other thing. He spent so long training with that horse, Brigo, to do this scene where he lays on the ground and picks him up. Oh, because if okay. he falls, look at how the horse falls over. If he falls on oh, Vigo, yeah, he's, he he's could gone. kill him. Like, he could, he could break his ribs. He could kill him legitimately. Vigo Morton used to spend the night in the stables with Brigo offset. He would spend the night to, to form this relationship. And ultimately to eventually be able to, Yeah, and then he eventually bought him, yeah. Wow. Uh, but to be able to do this trick. So, like, Vigo Morton. You're the man. There's a reason why you were so successful. Let's hope he gets it's, best actor. For no, as Aragorn. not not even a little. <laughs> you don't like Green Book? No, no, okay. that's that's not. A... It's the first time he's been nominated without showing his balls. Uh, yeah, this is true. Hey, was he? Oh, he wasn't nominated for Lord of the Rings, was yes. he? Um, uh, but I mean, no, you see his balls in Lord of the Rings. But that's that's my my issue is that like that was that scene, the wolf attack scene, is not shut, not pre pre storyboarded out. It's not. Choreographed. Yeah, no, oh, they were just has, like swinging against they swinging, air. They were swinging. It's very much the starting of the worrying signs. Now he pulls it off. <laughs> yeah. You can do it. anything, and then that's the he, problem. He, he pulls it off. He goes back in and digitally tinkers with it, and he makes it work. It's the first step but, that then leads to them filming the escape scene from Desolation of Smog in The Hobbit right. in just a giant green room right. with not a single piece of scenery, and no, then just being no like, oh, styrofoam. and then they can do this, and then they can do this. It is strange that in the early 2000s, they're revolutionizing CGI with this uh, motion capture, and then you and know, then a little over a decade later, not supposed to they make. put Benedict Cumberbatch in some of the cronkiest-looking <sighs> uh, CGI stuff that you've seen. I knew Cumberbatch rush job. killed the performance, too. So, so frustrating. Let's get to Helm's Deep. Okay, yeah. Okay, so I'm trying to think about if there's anything we need to highlight in the interim. Um, like we said, I think it drags a little bit here. Aragorn's whole battle. One, one story to, element. You have to that, mitigate the difference between Helm's Deep and Minas Tirith. You have to very much. You have that map scene we talked about earlier. Yeah. 
You draw with the, the pointing differences. You have Galadriel basically doing another prologue right. too. She does a resetting of the story. Who's she talking to? Gandalf? Yes. Telepathically. Yeah. And just talking about kind of reestablish the the gates, everything that's going on. Um and then Aragorn shows back up. Everybody's happy. And Helm's Deep is about to go. Uh, Helm's Deep is about to go now. One story thing that Aragorn leaving makes sense is he gets to scout the army. Yeah, he, so gets, he gets to, to tell, tell them, them like, "Oh, hey, there's ten thousand orcs here coming. We're in. Yeah. We're in deep uh, shit. We're probably not going to win. Yeah, we're three hundred men versus ten thousand. orcs. I and know. I will die as one of them. No, I like that. <laughs> and that scene, I love. Me too. The, the idea that, no. that 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 the the fellowship, as it still stands, those three, are bickering against one another because like he's an elf you know legolas is an elf he's like i don't have a man in this fight well he's looking around this and he's going there's no way they can win like what are we doing here we're just spinning these wheels and all these people are going to die like this is not cool and he's like that's not the point the point is to stand and fight and defend yes and if we die we die but we die defending what we love and what we know. So what's so interesting to me about that is that is literally a lesson that Theoden teaches him about five minutes before. Mm-hmm. When Theoden's being like, crops can be re-sown, this can be redone. And Aragorn's like, what are you talking about, dude? We're all going to die. Like, there's no, what, like, what? And Theoden takes him time. He's like, bitch. He's like, hey, shut the fuck up. Everybody's scared right now, obviously. It's like he teaches, because Aragorn, although he is a king, he doesn't know how to lead necessarily. Or he does in small batches. He doesn't maybe doesn't know about the broader strokes of ruling a kingdom. And so Thayden having to take him aside and be like, hey, man, these people are freaking out. Nobody needs that crap right now. Like, you need to give them false hope, even if it is false hope. Like, I really thought that was effective for Aragorn to learn that lesson. Then he does kind of turn around and almost teach Legolas a a bit of the the, same. And then Legolas Legolas comes back and asks for forgiveness, and there's nothing to forgive. Yeah, and this is where uh, Gimli's comedic relief starts to shine through in some dark moments where he has the chainmail. We have time to yeah. get this adjusted, and he drops it down. Uh, and then the elves show up, which is not in the books. Not in the Major books. Major change. Now, How dear. Now they are out on the front lines, battling to protect their kingdom. Oh, I did not realize. Oh, are, oh, yeah, so, I knew. I knew they were back so home. Are, yeah. So they are actively involved in the fight against. Yeah, and like dwarves are fighting all over the world right. as well. So like, no, there weren't a cup five hundred. Uh, there weren't five hundred elves that showed up at Helm's Deep to help fight them. Help them fight. But they were out and about fighting, so it wasn't like they were, you know, isolationist or they weren't, you know, neutral. I don't know what it is as it's a also, kid. It's also a callback to the idea of um, Elrond sending his sons to Aragon, uh, which is something that happens in the books. But they didn't want to have to go out and cast two more people and introduce two more characters. Yeah. And so this was a way to, and she because you'd already seen this elf before, you had seen him in. Um, you saw him in a bit fellowship. of fellowship, more so, in the extended edition, right? And so you're you have that tie that they are together, yeah. And so it's an homage to that 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 he is sending his sons to fight with. Aaron. I don't know what it was, man. When I was young and I saw the elves show up, I thought it was the coolest thing ever. Mm-hmm. I thought their armor looked awesome, very evocative of these elven hope. warriors. It gives you hope. Um, I've always felt that, that was one of the most effective changes that the movies made. I think it was positive because. When you see the eventual odds that they're under, it makes it more palatable that they survive because they got these last-second reinforcements from not just any reinforcements. Like, the 300, it's not even like it's 
something like 300 from the Spartan story of 300 in the gates of Thermopylae. Like, those are 300 elite soldiers. Rohan's bringing to bear, like, the dregs. Yes, these are... Well, just everyone needs to grab a sword. Yes, these are boys and farmers and old men. And and so to get this elite force of elves, I think, helps a lot. Like, this isn't... Yeah. Don't they even talk about how they're going to get out? Like, the way that they get out is a trickle. Oh, there's no way out. There's a... uh, There's, like, well, you could go... I don't even think... Can you get out of the caves? No, I think, like, they're, like, stuck. Well, which the the other part of it... To me, was the scenes of the the sons and the fathers being taken, taken away from the taken, families very effective, ways. which again is evocative of you know Vietnam, World War One, World War Two. Yeah. I mean, you know, that sense of you know they may leave and they may never come home, and if they do come home, they may never come back the same way. Yeah, uh, as Faramir says earlier in the movie, "War will make corpses of us all." Mm-hmm. Um, and then so you have the elves show up. There's like, okay, a little hope now. Or maybe you're going to be okay. And then you see the torches and the lightning. And you see just like the, the rain. mass of orcs when the lightning goes. And you're kind of like, holy shit. But I love the they way that it trouble. starts. I love the fact that it's just one one harebrained guy who's just like, here we go. Hey, great aim, though. I know know he accidentally fired his arrow, but that was some incredible aim. He smokes the orc right where Gimli says, their armor is weak under the shoulder and at the neck. And he he hits him right in the neck. But then the orcs are kind of doing almost a New Zealand tribute. It's like a Hakka type like Mm -hmm. chant to kind of intimidate their enemies. Um, Which when you hear about how they actually filmed Helm's Eve, which sounds fascinating. It was all night shooting. It was over a month long. It was super intense, stunts on stunts. And and actually, before the fights to get fired up, the New Zealand stuntmen for the elves and New Zealand stuntmen for the orcs, they would haka at each other. So they would actually be doing, like, war chants. And that's really when Vigo got so close with the stunt teams. He, his commitment... His effort in those scenes that you hear the Stunnies talk about it, they're they're just obsessed with him. They they think he's a man, and that's when they also started the weird tradition of headbutting each other, which they would later go on to do on the red carpets and stuff, and almost knock each other out. They just walk up and straight up, just boom, just huh. headbutt each other head to head. Wasn't there also a lot of butt fondling on the set whenever they were filming that? I know there was. No, oh, I mean, look, it, if in athletics, and that's pretty athletic huh. shooting, you slap a lot of ass. So yeah, I don't think it's crazy to think that there was a lot of ass slapping. Going on in the Helm's Deep so scenes. The, the Helm's Deep has a very author-esque, um, old English, um, you know, cannon, you know, uh, catapults and grappling hooks and ladders on walls. Yeah, siege and, weapons that I had, that I thought at the time, I guess I just never come across them in history. But, I mean, they're, they're a real, definitely real-life counterpart, so that's how you attack a castle wall. To me... It was all very novel at the time when I saw it. I was like, whoa, look at those ladders with the hooks. And then, yeah. and then the one they, guy who gets They got the hook. giant grapples when they're like uh, bringing up the huge ladders. And I don't know how Legolas only ends up with 43 kills when he That's shoots a, down the one. Any, any, whenever a movie ladder. has something like that, like, you know, you've got to get into the castle. That's always a thing that I'm. Just like, how are you going to get in there? What is, are you going to get in there well, convincingly? No, I mean, that's and why they do that's, a really good job. Yes, that's why castles are so effective. And even even Theoden's feeling himself at the beginning of the fight where he's like, hey, that's all you got? Yeah. Y'all are crashing. Like, yeah, we can defend this. But then Saruman's trickery. Saruman just straight up has a bomb. Yeah. He has a bomb by an Olympic torchman who gets shot multiple times and still makes his way. I love the berserkers. Yeah. I love the orc berserkers. They have them at the top of each ladder. No armor, kind of in the ancient Viking berserker sense. They've got these super long swords. You can tell they're like shroomed out of their mind, just thirsty for blood. Uh, but yeah, he takes two arrows before diving to set off the bomb and blow up uh, and blow up the wall, which is a great miniature shot. 
That blown up wall is actually mm-hmm. just a, oh, uh, a okay. miniature fantastic, wall being blown up. Fantastic miniature that they actually blew up with all the styrofoam and everything. It blew yeah. up all that styrofoam. Mm-hmm. How sad. Yeah, so that, I thought that was uh, I thought so I thought that was really well done. Um, they started to break through, and within it, like so, what stood out to y'all from the action itself? Because it really is just a giant thirty minute extended action. Which scene. that's the thing about this, and I mean the same with Return of the King. Like when, in Return of the King, we get like an hour long. Battle of Pelennor feels like an hour. Yeah, and with all that stuff, you know, movies where there is a fight at the end, that type of stuff gets boring really easily. It and can. this one, it. There's so much going on, and you care about everyone that's going on. Fellowship in this movie, I know we've said it's not as good, but it's still it's still great. And you do. There's so much. It's great. There's something invested in everything that's going on. Whenever the even the orcs are trying to break in, which is you know you know a, a trope that happens in all of these types of things. It's very interesting. Well, I'm and, with and, it the and, whole and time. I wonder if like this is maybe where some of the dragging around Helm's Deep when they're showing you the little culvert, little water hole. See, I love that part. And they're showing you the little like. Like, this is where that really pays off, like, all yeah. that setup. Because you know kind of the castle layout. And so when and they're Aragon showing things... goes through it point by point. Yes. And, and so when they're showing things like, okay, now they're attacking that 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 door. You know, the, the door to the keep. And I love Aragorn and Gimli sneaking around the side. And Gimli's yeah. comedic relief is throughout and here. And goes back to the tossing there, Yeah, the there's door. so much like, personality like, going on. What are they saying? And he's like, uh, what does he say? Shall I pick you up and need me to find you a box? At the very beginning, Legolas says to him. And he starts laughing, which is great. Kind of that gallows humor, and then when he tells Aragorn, "You'll have to toss me," <laughs> don't don't tell the elf. Uh, it's also by extension one of the few times where I think you really get an idea of how dwarves could fight because when they pull away after that scene where they jump um, onto the walkway that leads up to the door, that's a CG Gimli fighting, and he's moving fast because a lot of times John Reese Davies fighting is a little stiff looking because you know he's in all like this makeup yeah. and everything, and he doesn't pack a lot of punch like some of the other guys. CG Gimli. Is just clearing out orcs with his with his axe, just like sweeping them away. So so within the within the battle things, I think that stands out. How do y'all feel about the now infamous legless shield slide? Uh, I think the, the internet has turned on it. I think the it, internet has held it's it up. A little up. bit silly. The internet has held it up as one of the examples of why Peter Jackson ended up going like so over the top in later well, movies. Well, with I mean, in the Fellowship, I thought it was a little bit funny, not badly so. Whenever he's got all the arrows and it's. Like, it, it holds it so long that it's kind of like the Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> but if you hold that for, like, four more seconds. And this is kind of like, like, let's get another little thing. It's kind of like, whoa, yeah. look at how badass he is. Oh, he's still being badass. Like, oh, yeah, he is. Real. Look at how badass he is still. That doesn't that doesn't was, take me out of it. That but. was not as big of a thing for me as the CGI, like, grabbing at the horse underneath and pulling yourself why, up Yeah, on. why did he pull himself up the opposite direction? Why couldn't he have just done, like, a simple it, jump up? It was up? a CGI shot. No, I know, but I'm saying, like... He makes you around two times. But, but I'm saying, but even from a physics standpoint, he swings and swings yeah. back. Like, it would have made more sense just for him to swing on. I almost mentioned that earlier. Maybe but it's just peacocking. Look, I, it's, it's, it's basically just to show that these elves and Legolas, and they talk about this, when they develop their fighting style, they want them to be almost telepathic, almost superhuman. And, yeah, they've been alive for thousands of years. So, of course, they're going to be abnormally gifted i as a kid and i still like it but maybe that's why as a kid i freaking love this the shield uh mm-hmm. slide i See, thought it was so cool is, I get- he's going down the stairs he's popping up arrows he even kicks the shield off at the end and it sticks in the guy like i thought it was awesome people who have a problem with that are the same people who have a problem with a cross card lightsaber yeah, yeah, like, exactly. It's, which it's, I like. I like, like it's it. really cross cool. guard lights. No cross guard lights. How Kylo's people got pissed about Kylo's oh. having like the guard on. I it. thought that was cool. Yeah. I feel like that'd be useful. How important it is um, in a series where people get their limbs chopped off all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but exactly. I mean, 
it's a cool shot. It, it's effective. I think it's fun, man. During the, these it, action scenes, to avoid the monotony that Nathan's talking about, you, know, you got to have these like set piece type of fun. It might moments. be the type of thing when you take away, you realize, oh no, that was good. That was there. But and, and, I, I, I get so nervous even watching skateboard videos of guys going down the stairs. Like that freaks me out. And this, I get a little bit of like, oh, be careful. Well, and then Return of the King, Legolas goes to the next level and he rides down the mama kill trunk right. after he's basically killed yeah the entire that part's really himself. cool exactly. i love that part but so that's the escalation from the first movie right. to then this move to then that move like yeah. it just gets bigger and grander really like the series does and, and as we, a whole and can we really blame them when you know we have a fast and the furious franchise where we're like i still have not seen one of those movies. like doing doing a movie on the moon I mean, really, like, like a certain element still has to be fun. And Peter Jackson, as a movie maker, is like, okay, I can do whatever I want with this action scene. I want to have Legolas do some really badass shit. Like yeah. it's that simple. And I love, and I love the counting between the two and the competition. And and, and that's one of my band. favorite oh, yeah, parts I of the books. That. Now that now that is not in the original no. version though. Now they they have some counting scenes, but the final scene right. where. He's sitting on, uh, he like, this again. is pretty number 43. And then like, let's shoot him to say that he's tied. He's still twitching. Uh, the, their relationship is the funniest part of all these movies. And then the sun coming through the window and then all seems lost. And then the sun comes through the window and the, the realization of, wait, what day is it? Yeah. And, and so to me, okay, so, so eventually, so everything keeps going poorly. They keep getting pushed back. And now they're in the throne room. And I love this moment because uh, this is the... The hopeless, what do you do when things look their darkness? I always say this, right? What defines you as a purpose, what defines you as a person, is not the adversity you're met with, it's how do you respond to it. And so when this how cast of characters, respond to it, with this cast of characters that we love, mm -hmm. when they're backed into a wall, Amen. it's as dark as it's ever been, they are going to die, what do they do? Ride out with me. Right? Let's make such an end, they will sing of it for ages, ride out with me against all odds, Everything else be damned. Yeah, we're going to die. I'm not going to die here sniveling in the corner. I'm going to go out on my own terms. Gimli goes and blows the horn. So how does that not apply to, you know, coaches trying to cross the 50-yard line in national championship games? I don't know. what. No, I don't know what this means. <laughs> Should, shouldn't they change their strategy in order to try and... They and should. Breach, and breach the 50. You should almost go out leaving everything on the table, table. instead of conservative, right? Yeah, yeah exactly, that's right? That's something. Uh, but, uh, but yes, Gimli and the horns and But the that shaking. whole speech, mm -hmm. that whole speech, the ride out for death, uh, yeah, it's just, I thought it's great. And um, really cool special effect, too, when they ride out and just knocking everyone over. And then Gandalf showing up and the, the white light, <gasps> again, shining down. And He's the rescuing. Back. The only thing that's missing is the eagles. Everything else is just perfect. Yeah, even though, like I said, I called it a deus ex machina earlier. And the reason why it's not, though, is because deus ex machina, like the Eagles, is generally unasked for. And it's just it's like grace that is unasked for, right? It's almost very Christian theme grace in that, that regard. Grace that you. Yeah. Yes. This Go is and ask your dad for money. You can't right. do it all the time. <laughs> See, this is more like asking your dad for money. This is more purposeful. Gandalf knew he had to hunt down Aramir, knew he had to bring him back. He does. It all times out. Bam, orcs get smashed. Now, the orcs were defeated then. They just yeah. got pushed into a retreat. But then yeah. we learned. Oh, yeah, but they, yeah. Oh, wait, all of a sudden there's a forest out there. Where did that forest come from? And now we see all the threads coming back together. The impact Which it, of Mary and great. Pippin. It, whenever you see the trees going, and it does tie everything up so nicely. And, and So the then, impact of Mary and Pippin, for those that don't know, Mary and Pippin, they build the trees. Uh, the Ents say they don't want to fight. They force him to look at Isengard. Treebeard rallies the troops. They fight Isengard, but they also move all of Fangorn, they shepherd the trees outside of Helm's Deep so that when the orcs retreat, they retreat into the trees and they get slaughtered to an orc. Just mm -hmm. absolutely destroyed. Um, 
And it, uh, I guess, I guess. I do love the part wherever the trees are going to, uh, to destroy what, what Saruman Isengard. Yeah, okay, so that's what I want to talk about next. So we're kind of done with Helm's Eve, then, right? Anything else to add to Helm's um, Eve? No. no. Right? I mean, Gandalf, the charge looks great. Visually, yeah. it's all very yeah. stunning. It's all like a little bit of slow motion there. It looks like a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, Steep Hill. I did the, what is it? What is the last one? War for the Planet of the Apes? That yeah. last fight reminds me a lot of the one in, in Two Deep. Towers. Yeah. I, the, just the, yeah, the design of it reminds me a lot of the one from Helm's Deep. Um, okay, so what? So then, what did y'all think about the Ents raiding Isengard? <laughs> Will Ferrell. Right, that's way well, There's just something on TV that looks very funny. <laughs> uh, the what? The Ents raiding Isengard. I I like that. I really enjoyed. I I just the visual of them going and destroying everything, all of the water, everything flooding, and uh, Christopher another, Lee an- does another a great miniature, job. Another miniature shot, by the way. Oh, Nature. yeah, and yeah, I think you can tell a little bit, like the whenever the water goes down into the cave. It looks a little bit like that, but it still works. It was probably because whenever that thing happens, they're like, how does it look? Funny, it's, yeah. funny y'all talk about that because one, the tree that gets set on fire. I love that part. That detail is hilarious. That detail is hilarious. And he puts they, himself out. But <laughs> that detail was put in there because uh, New Line gave them a note saying that they were afraid that children were going to be scared that this tree had been set on fire and they had to figure out a way to put him out. Yeah, so he's good. He's got the water. So I, they, I, I they, they thought that, that was so funny. And, and Nature coming back. You ripped all these trees up to make all of these things. And yeah, it's not exactly subtle, but right. it is a very clear nature line. Back to bite you. Yes, exactly. Like nature winning out against industrialization again, in the end. In the end, in the book, that's supposed to lead to all the people from Elm's Deep riding to Isengard. Which happens, though, in the which, extended which, Return of the King. But it was supposed to be at the end of Two yes, Towers. Yeah. And in the editing process, they moved it over. Well, to also Return Shelob, right? I mean, right. Shelob's also end of Two, two towers, towers in the book as well. Right. Uh, but you know what? I don't. I, I don't mind that they did that though, because this was a good ending point. Mm-hmm. Because you have the climax of Helm's Deep, you have the, the climax ints, of the Ents winning. winning, and then we have the third story climax uh, where Faramir brings them go. Frodo to Osgiliath. He goes face to face with the fell beast. He lets him go. Uh, I the would be scene wherever he yeah, whenever he goes to almost give the ring up. Yeah. And yeah, almost kill and who's Sam. Tack- and who tackles? But who tackles him Sam. to stop him from giving the ring up? Sam does. And then he almost kills Sam. And that is when Sam gives which is what is my favorite cinematic speech of all time. Which is in, in, emblematic of this shot where he had Go- Gollum by the point of his sword earlier in oh, the yeah, film. Now point. he has Sam at the point of his sword. Direct echoes. Right. But when Sam is giving that speech mm-hmm. about how a new day must rise and... You know why do why do people in the stories keep going because there's no hope and and every, I, I've used it on radio so many times because I think it is so perfect for when you're in your lowest moment trying to keep hope against hope. Like Aomer says earlier, you know, do not trust to hope; it is forsaken in these lands. Well, Sam's even in a more hope forsaken place, and he still manages to find that positivity. And when you juxtapose it with the thoughts of the Ents winning and the Helm's Deep winning, uh, you get a little bit of hope in what has been mostly a a hopeless movie, right? And then, right, like it, it's a bit of a happy ending in a very grim and dour movie, right? And then the water cave, the uh, underground tunnels, which don't exist in the book, but they utilize them as a way to get them out of Minas Tirith. Yeah, and then or they're in Askelia, but but whatever. Askelia. Yes, and then the uh, and then of course the the shot that is the echo of the shot from the original, the first movie, the end. It shows you how much closer they are, yeah, to where they need to get to, and of course Smeagol having the conversation with himself. Say so she will take care of this. Oh, no, I, I love, yeah, I, I love the way that it wraps up the which, movie with how Gollum is plotting. Which, if you don't know the books, you have no idea who she is. Yeah, no, I don't know the books. Did y'all, um, 
Yeah, and I didn't either. When I, I, I did not read these books until after I saw each movie. Uh, did y'all hear when... Okay, okay, so hold on before I get ahead of myself. So that's kind of the story then, right? Mm-hmm. Is there anything that we missed? We no, wrapped up. We hit, it, we hit our three climaxes. Uh, when watching it this time, people usually say that there are quite a few endings, like false endings. No, in. that's Return of the King mainly. People don't say that about Two Towers? I don't think so. People okay. say that you, I didn't too many, you do the fake death many characters. Uh, I could do it with two that. different characters. You do it with Aragon and you do it with Pippin. Yeah. Uh, yeah. multiple times throughout the movie. Um but even then they address that in the audio commentary as well where they just say, look, if you take some of these changes, some of these these additions and and ch- that we made to the book into the movie, um if you take that out, think about the perpetu- the the perpetualization of how that changes everything from there. Yeah. On. And so, you know, it, it's I, the main complaint I hear about Two Towers is just that it's long, that it's not as not as entertaining until you get to Helm's Deep, and that it's a lot of exposition. Yeah, I just like I said, I think my main critique it's of this the middle movie, movie is it's yeah, it's the middle movie, and and I just don't which they I don't love the middle portion. Like even if you look at our conversation today, we spent an hour on kind of the. First third, right? Jackson says, and then we himself, rush through this middle third, and then we spend a lot of time on the back third. Ja- yeah. Jackson says himself at the end, "This movie fell through the cracks. We were four to six weeks behind. Yeah, we were trying to rush this. Like this, we were spending so much time on Fellowship and so much time on perfecting the climax for Return of the King that this movie kind of got lost in the shuffle. Yeah, there I don't care about your excuses. Peter. There weren't nearly, <laughs> there weren't nearly as many rewrite reshoots on Two Towers." There weren't nearly as many pickups on Two Towers. It was just, you know, it was the middle chapter, and yeah, it and, and got left behind. And there's also just the pure, from the pure story perspective, that, like you said, the calm before the storm scene, you have three different characters going through calm before the storm, mm-hmm. or three different storylines. When you look at Mary and Pippin trying to convince Treebeard to act, Frodo and Sam getting kidnapped, and then the journey to Helm's Deep, it's just they all line up for kind of a long lull. But but outside of that, I think the extended edition is much better than the original theatrical cut, and it does ultimately it accomplishes the goal, which is it moves Set the story further and it sets up. everything up for the third movie, which is long. Yeah, which well, is well that's the thing; it's so long. But and I haven't seen it in a while. But it's been my that's always been my favorite one. It it just man, it knocks it out of the park. Return of the constantly. King. Yeah. See, I think even I, though it's got a lot of endings, I told someone this yesterday. Return of the King is the best movie. Because it is a truly triumphant ending in filmmaking. To tie up all these threads as satisfactorily as it does is masterful. It's so well executed. It's the best movie because it's the culmination of this Herculean effort. My favorite is still Fellowship, I think. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I get that. I enjoyed watching Fellowship this time so much more. Fellowship's the most rewatchable. I enjoyed rewatching Fellowship Fellowship a lot more than rewatching this one, honestly. Fellowship is rewatchable. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I would go watch Fellowship again. It would be a task to have to watch Yeah. And, hours. and Return of the King is is it's so it's really grand long. finale. So. No, and, and it, it really, I mean, pulling off Return of the King, even with how good Fellowship is, is what makes it one of the few franchises that lives as a classic. And yes. you can tell by the time it's done, like this, the, what you just achieved, you're gonna go down and it's hit, the in cinematic history. It's why I won 11 out of 11 Oscars. Like Return of the King didn't win all those Oscars just for Return of the King. Yeah, like, I firmly believe in my heart that Peter Jackson won Best Director because of. The 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 years of work well, because of, course, of the whole Sophia body. Sophia Coppola is infinite, an infinitely better director than Peter Jackson, but she got shut out. I would agree with that. I would agree with that. Virgin Suicides. Virgin Suicides is better than anything in Lord of the Rings. 
Jeez. I'm not so much a fan of Lost in Translation. I love Lost in Translation. It's the type of crap that I have to deal with on a Lord of the Rings podcast. Bling ring. All right, a couple questions. King Kong is still way better than I, anything I know we're at two hours Rings. here, but I'm keeping you all a couple more minutes. Jack Black is a better actor than Viggo Mortensen. Uh, <laughs> I love Jack Black's new YouTube channel, by the way. Just check what? it out if you haven't. Yeah, it's very funny. He makes a video every Friday. to support anything Jack Black is in due to his connection, what? To, the, what? His connection to the thing that must not be named that has a video game and is... Uh, the Harvey yeah, the, Weinstein video game? No, the the, <laughs> the, 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 the Jumanji movie. Oh. That is the abomination to all mankind. Oh my god! Okay, Jumanji's fun, and Jack Black is the best part of Jumanji. He's he's incredible. I wouldn't say it's that bad. He's in Bernie. He's, no, no, no. Brian has weird hangups on Jumanji. He Brian is so deep in the Jumanji lore that he feels like. The movie severely disrespected the original Jumanji lore and that it breaks it for Oh, him. so you're like deep in, you love the original Jumanji. Yes, I, I believe yes. that Alan Parrish's whole legacy was destroyed. But, you will wax poetic on Jumanji like, for entirely too long if you allow it. And Ghostbusters and anything else. I have my own rabbit holes. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. Uh, did y'all catch when the, is it is it the Wilhelm scream? The famous scream that's oh, in all yeah, movies? Yeah. Did y'all catch when it was? Uh, isn't it? It's in the fight with the orcs. It's an orc that does it. Is it whenever? No, it's not an orc that does it. Oh, I must have mentioned. Oh, is it at the Battle I mean, of Helm's this is Deep? A very, I did not tell you. It is in Battle of Helm's Someone's Deep. Someone's thrown over the wall, right? There you go. It's at the elf catches a crossbow to the chest, and he falls face first on the wall, and you're like, ah! The, I, the yeah. very famous, this is where I learned about it, was watching the making of this, where I learned about the Wilhelm scream. And then did you catch the Peter Jackson cameo this yes, time? Yes, I did. Throwing Wait. the rock? Yeah, throwing the rock. In. Oh, I missed yeah. it. Yeah, he's throwing the rock when they're throwing the rocks down on the orcs who are uh, bringing the battering somebody. ram. Yeah, when they're bringing the battering ram up to the uh, up to the wall. My little brother's become a nerd earlier than I did, and he I was watching this with him, and he he loves the Wilhelm scream. And whenever it whenever oh, it came, no in, his eyes like lit up, and they're like, "Oh, there it is! It's oh, in this." That's awesome, man. That's incredible. Uh, shout out to whoever made that Wilhelm scream. So hopefully, we are not you know two months after. From doing another yeah, this movie. next one should be quicker. Yeah, this yeah, next one should be I, quicker. Whenever I finished Two Towers, I was so ready. And I don't think I saw Two Towers in theaters, but I, I can only imagine, even though it's just a year, I was so ready to just start Return of the yeah. King. Yeah, no, I know. I know. You want to you wanna see where he's going. I, I cry. I've, I know. Last time I saw it, it would, I've seen it so many times, but I, there are like three times. I cry three times at least in Return of the King, and I'm excited to do it again. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, it's, uh, it's so tragic. The Whenever only point that they moved go me to Tears Mordor. of Two Towers is the Theoden scene really mm -hmm. got me. And then, uh, yeah, when, when Frodo tells Sam to turn away in the next movie, that's that's always very emotional. Um, final question. Do elves Boop. like our, yes, the thing that I tweeted yesterday. But everybody thought I meant like Christmas elves. No, I mean like Lord of the Rings high elves. Do, do they, they poop? Do they poop? Can you imagine I don't want, I don't Arwen want to. or Elrond? Like, I can't even imagine them farting, I, much less having an actual I bowel movement. I don't want to picture Kate Blanchett as Galadriel going to the bathroom. I that's mean, just, it, well, so people have, that's a kind of funny thing, right? People have enough problems with this question of, like, do women poop or whatever? But, you know, it's, it's just like one of those cultural jokes mm -hmm. that people make. But, like, I, I really don't think elves do. I've thought about it a lot, and... I think that their digestive systems and they eat such like a leafy diet or something that it works differently. And I think it just like they probably just secrete their nutrients through their skin or something. something yeah. Like just wafts into the air. Yeah. Maybe their bodies just use everything. I mean, yeah, exactly. Right. You just, you can't see it, can you? Yeah. Maybe they just don't have, they probably just don't even have assholes. I honestly I probably don't. Honestly, I would not be, you could tell me an elf didn't have a butthole and I would not be surprised at all. Huh. Yeah. So there you go. A little food for thought. If you made it, 
to the end of this two-hour journey. Well, has this uh, been two hours? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We started, we started well. about two hours, ten minutes ago. Okay. Congratulations wow. yeah. to all 44 people who are uh, watching this and have made it all the way through. Yes, oh, yes. Thank yeah, you so much. More people watch this than I thought would, uh, and I don't know how many downloads we had on the podcast, but we'll see. Yeah, we'll keep pushing it, man. We'll push the first one now. That, but whatever. Thank you, Thank you to everyone the, who joined us. I do want to do one on. Absolutely. Well, also, okay, in case it ends up being that we end up taking a month to do the next one. Um the fact that the Oscars are probably not going to have the cinematography awards broadcast is disgusting. And also the fact that there isn't uh, a category for stunt people is also disgusting. Yes. So. Right, we'll, we'll do a post-show episode where you can get your Oscar uh, anger off your chest. Okay. For sure. Okay. Um, they're really not going to show the award for cinematography? They, they, the, they changed the process to where they're going to the cut some. visual medium, and we're not seeing the award for the person who actually handles the camera. Well, so basically what happens is the Academy is looking for ways to cut down on the telecast. And so they're only going to do two songs. They're not going to cut sound or something. And they're they're cutting some other awards. And they are not offering mm. a uninterrupted stream. So like the ideal oh, the ideal would be that there would be a wait in a day and age where everything is moving towards streaming, they're literally going the opposite direction and not doing it under. So there's, there's, there's not going to be a commercial on. free stream. So these awards are going to be given out while the commercials are going being going going on on the national telecast. Hey, dumbasses! Like so there's what there's not a what there's not a commercial yeah. free scene. Uh, there's not a commercial free stream where you'll be able to watch this tel- uh, the whole thing. It'll just live. be like welcome back, and just so you know, no, yeah, the during Cold the War won. break, we we gave the best cinematography Oscars to Inaratu. Look, once you announce the wrong best picture winner, like can't you can do whatever you want from then on? And what like, sucks, like, you can't get worse. Like what? Roma is going to clean up, and if Roma actually wins best cinematographer, that will be the first time that a director acted as the cinematographer and, the and writer. won, and the writer and won. For that role. So it might be Oscar making history and they're not going to broadcast this. Unbelievable. All right. That's crazy. All right. But we could complain about that all day. T Bob A Bear, Nathan Velasquez, producer for Off the Bench. Also, Nathan, do you want to plug into your uh, video production businesses or anything? Foxtail Productions is a premier video production company in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Also, I'm on Twitter at Incredible Mr. Nat. Allegedly. Uh, <laughs> BCW Tiger fan on Twitter. My man Brian Wood hosts the Movies on the Brain podcast. Plug whatever you want. Uh, we are on we are on iTunes at Movies on the Brain. I am at BCW Tiger fan. We talk movies and nerd them all the time. Also, yeah. T Bob has a daughter. So. Uh, and I do have a daughter. Shout out to baby Alice. Uh, she is currently getting. Oh, she's still a baby. Yeah. So I have read. She's about to be one. I have read her The Hobbit out loud. I've read her Sorcerer's Stone out loud. And we are about halfway through Fellowship out loud nice. right now. Yeah. So right. uh, everybody have a great day. Uh, we love you. We love Lord of the Rings. And we hope you enjoyed this. And we'll be back for Return of the King. See y'all later.